he did the creepy old me. man is your the creepy old man the creepy old white man um <laughs> I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading The Long Mars or The Long Book. <laughs> and Alra, you've wanted to say that all of these books, haven't you? It's possibly I have said that actually. <laughs> the feeling oh, is no. it just, if it feels right, say it. <laughs> and our returning guest is author and editor Joel Martin. Welcome back, Joel. Hi, Ben. Hi, Liz. Good to be back. It's nice to have you back. Been a while since we talked to you. What's been happening? Not too much. I've been reading a few things, and this is one of them. <laughs> Outside of that, <laughs> surviving COVID. Um, yes. And new job, new work. I'm back in the world of podcasts. Nice. That's exciting. Yeah. No, I'm working with the Dementia Center, and we're doing a podcast called The Dementia Podcast originally titled just coming on as a producer and working on a more narrative podcast which is fun means you get to do a lot of scripting and a lot of other stuff that you might not be able to do on say interview podcasts right Mm. it's great it's a lot of fun it's heavy Mm. it's pretty fulfilling so we're in this rebuilding phase right now on the podcast but uh september is targeted for the relaunch so very exciting and yeah i hope to share more when when it happens Mm. but that's me pretty much well, that's plenty of things. That's like a lot yeah. of things. Especially two long books. Yeah. Yeah. And is, is the Dementia podcast, I feel like this is very, it's thematically linked to our podcast because as we know, Terry Pratchett, so from post-cortical atrophy, PCA, a rare form of Alzheimer's that affected him quite early on and which affected his motor functions and, and those sorts of skills rather than his memory directly for a long time. But are you, are you talking to actual people with dementia about their Absolutely, experiences? Absolutely, yeah. So one of the things that the podcast does is we try and talk to people in their own voice and try and tell their own story um, and make that as comfortable as possible. It's a window into an experience that isn't perhaps destigmatized enough. You know, using the language that we use is one of the big things uh, on the way we talk about uh, dementia um, and Alzheimer's and not making it as homogenous as it seems, like you said, mm. in Pratchett's own, you know, it's, it's completely different. And and that's something I had to learn, you know, coming on as the production side of things, you still end up having to, to give yourself a bit of an education. So it's it's been great. Looking forward to seeing what it what it turns out to in the in the next few months as well. And there's a there's a little writing industry related, um, you know, wrinkle in that relaunch that I'm excited about. Uh-huh. We'll okay. see what that is. Mm. We'll be watching with interest to <laughs> find out. Absolutely. I just want to ask quickly, because we'll move on to the actual book we're here to discuss, but you said you'd been reading a couple of things. What else have you been reading? Oh, so 
I was so disappointed on not getting some sci-fi wars in any particular story that we might end up not talking about today. <laughs> uh, that I'm back into this teen fiction that I loved growing up, which is Warhammer 40,000. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, Ben, maybe it was COVID, but whatever it was, I'm straight back in. You know, I think they're reaching their 90th book in the series. So. <laughs> 90 catching up to do. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's a rabbit yeah. hole. Genetically engineered space marines space fighting, marines. Yeah. fighting the forces of absolutely. evil. Absolutely. It's in great. inverted commas, the forces of evil. Some of them are the forces of evil. Oh, they um, are, they're a fascist human dictatorship. And it's, yeah, they're space fascists. So, it's terrible. So fun. But also great. Yeah. One of the last times you were on, we read the first one of these books, The Long Earth. Uh-huh. And there is a book in between. Did you read The Long War? No, I did. I, I sped read through that. Um, <laughs> and the entire time I was like, all right, some space marines are going to show up. It's going to be an intergalactic <laughs> war. I'm so excited. I cannot wait. And I was bitterly disappointed. Oh, we did discuss that. So honestly, you know, when you called me back and you're like, you know, The Long Mars, I'm like, is it The Long Mars, Ben? Is it just going to be a dust storm? I don't know. Well, we will find out. We will find out. And we should begin our discussion of the Long Mars with our traditional reading of the blurb. The Long Earth is in chaos. The cataclysmic aftermath of the Yellowstone eruption is shutting civilization down. As populations flee to the relative safety of stepwise Earths, Sally Lindsay, Joshua Valiente and Lobsang do what they can to assist in the perilous cleanup. But Joshua is called to a crisis closer to home. A newly emergent breed of young, super-bright post-humans threatens the status quo of normal human society, and violent confrontation seems inevitable. And now Sally has been contacted by her long-vanished father, Willis Lindsay, the maverick inventor of the original Stepper device. He is planning a fantastic voyage and wants her to join him. But what is his true motivation? For mankind, and for the long Earth itself, a dangerous new adventure is beginning. Doesn't that just sound like a great book? Like, that, that just sounds like it will be so good. Like, unfortunately, like, I'm just going to shoot my shot right at the beginning. Okay. I feel like the book was strongly let down in its structure. Like, never have I read a book that is, like, 80% exposition and that every time it starts to get to something exciting that you start to invest in, it's like, whoop, we're going to flip across to another storyline that we're going to do the same thing for and then just flip between them and never really pay off any of them in any meaningful way. Like every single one of them has strong moments and I don't regret reading this book, but the structure, I was just like, what are you doing? Yeah, I had the exact same feeling and it was very weird because The Long Earth, I thought, was really good. It was pretty competent. It did have a lot of Baxterisms in the idea of there's a lot of skipping of good stories that could be there, right, in the in the long earth. But like at the same time it was a very competent story in and of itself. And you you know, you had set characters that you kind of followed and they had a bit of an arc at least, um mm. in, in that one. But I guess a lot of the criticisms that I would have had of the long earth was sort of muted because I thought, well this is a great setup and I can't wait to see what happens. And I didn't expect that we would necessarily get more setup with very little payoff. And, and it is tending towards that Stephen Baxtery style of writing. And this book more than the long earth felt very Baxter. Hmm. This book felt very sort of 
look at all this cool sci-fi world building <laughs> with a story that's just barely there. And yeah. so, yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you on that one. There's so much I enjoyed and like the, the blurb, like that stuff is definitely in there, but I don't, didn't feel like, and I, and we'll talk in detail about each of the storylines as well. Um, it's not just going to skip over everything, but I felt like every time I started to lock into one of the human stories or into one of the characters, they were ripped away from me. And by the time we came back to them, that sort of had faded, even though I sort of read it in a concentrated block. So it wasn't that I was taking time away from it. I'm not sure if it's just my mood, if I was like too tired for it. But yeah, this time I was just like, I don't really care what happens to Sally. Lob sang who? It's been like 300 mm-hmm. pages since we last saw him. Yep. And then suddenly a whole bunch of new characters would come in and it, I almost got whiplash with it. And again, the pacing, like we would spend five pages learning how one of the gliders looked and mm-hmm. then the payoff of a father-daughter relationship that's finally come to a head, one paragraph yeah. at the end of a thing. Yeah. I'm like, excuse me, you spent more time describing this hole. But, yeah. <laughs> I uh, Look, I will say it sounds like I enjoyed it more than either of you, so I'm glad that we're not, like, universally, like, what a terrible book. Um, but I absolutely see... It's not terrible, but... I, I totally see where you're coming from. I didn't find that it was that differently paced to certainly the long war. I feel like they already set up this several different sort of main stories. And I kind of ended up thinking about this, and this is kind of probably how we'll describe it, uh, as three main Mm. storylines that then kind of, two of which kind of intersect a lot, uh, and one of which just sort of finishes and then the main character from that one goes into the other (laughs) storyline briefly uh, right at the end. So it's- I didn't feel that so much. I did feel some disappointment. And then one of the storylines in particular, I really did not like for reasons that we'll get into. I really enjoyed two of them, though. I really got into it. I didn't like necessarily the characters, but, you know, the characters don't always have to be likable for you to enjoy the story. And I'm a bit sad about some of the choices made of what happened to some people, which mm-hmm. we'll get into. I don't know why I'm being so coy about it. It's because I want people to come on the journey with us, I guess. Yeah. But I think also before we get into it too much, you know, we've talked about it having a lot of Baxterisms there. We should put it into a bit of context. So this is the last novel to be published before Pratchett's death. Mm. And it wasn't long before. Just a matter um, of months. It was, think, yeah. it was like, oh, well, it was more, it was like a half a year. It was June the year before and he died in, in March right. the next year. And there were three that were published afterwards, two of which, of course, were the last two Long Earth novels. And I was trying to find out some more information about, you know, what do we know about the writing process? We kind of talked about this on our previous episodes, but it seems that the first two books he had more input post first drafts. So he worked on the first draft quite a lot on all five books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, apparently first drafts of all of the books were finished by 2013 right. with both of them working on it together. And then he was like, but I've got to go do other stuff because I don't know how much writing time I've got left and there's other things I want to write. So- after that, for this book and the two ones that come after it, Baxter did all of the sort of final redrafting and polishing on his own. Right. But Pratchett was still quite heavily involved. Uh, apparently, um, Baxter did visit Pratchett for a couple of things. And there's one sequence in the final book that Pratchett really had a heavy hand in adding. But apart from that, yeah, Baxter was finishing off this one and the next two uh, by himself. But Pratchett was deeply involved at the first draft stage. So- Make of that what you will. It's certainly got a lot fewer jokes in it. Mm. And for a book that 
extends the storyline into 2045. Like, it's gotten quite far into the future now. Yes. Mm. There's still a lot of 20th century pop culture references that I'm really struggling to believe any of the characters are old enough to know, particularly the really early stuff. And a few that I'm like, okay, that one I believe. But, yeah. So, anyway. But we should get into it. Let's get into the plot. And I think, because I feel like it's a real setup. I want to go through the first chapter in just a little bit of detail, and then we'll zoom out and try and do the storylines. Because, again, it is a long book. While there's only so many storylines, there's a lot that happens. There's a lot of details. We just can't cover all of it in one episode. But let's have a talk about chapter one, because there's there's a lot of very short vignettes in chapter one, setting up a lot of stuff. And this book, kind of like The Long War, which picked up quite a bit after- the nuclear bomb that was set off at the end of the first book. Mm. This one starts up five years after the eruption of Yellowstone. But then the first chapter kind of gives us these little moments to fill in some of what's happened during that five years. Mm. Through this sort of lens of Lobsang, like reminiscing about his friends and what they've been up to these last five years. Mm. And early on, Joshua and Sally are helping rescue people from near the eruption site And one of the very few times Helen Green is even mentioned in this book is to say that she's taken Joshua. This is, uh, if you can't remember this, this is Joshua's wife. Justice for Um, Helen. She's just, yeah. Oh my God. She's just gone. She's left. She's taken her son back to home in the high megas uh, where they live in hell knows where. And Joshua's to stay behind to help, which at that stage seems quite reasonable. But then later on, without any further explanation, he's just estranged from them. That's yeah. really all the information we're given. Like, well, that's she's it. She's just so high maintenance wanting her husband to be, like, in the same sort of <laughs> world that they're in. Like, On I the mean, same planet. Honest, honestly, like, she's so needy. Like, how dare she? But yeah. as in, like, they, they just paint her as this, like, distant scold, whereas previously she was a, a significant character and now she's just, like, a grumpy wife raising his kid and just anger at him from a distance for very reasonable reasons. Plus, as we talked about, I think in the previous episode, he married her like when she was very young. So, um, yeah, big power imbalance there. Maybe she's finally realized, I don't, this guy (laughs) is not the best. Like, yeah, I mean, but, but the problem is that he is, there's nothing really apart from this weird estrangement that is never really explained. He's actually not a jerk. Like it doesn't make sense that he would behave this way. And I really dislike that. Yeah. It was a weird story decision to rely on that trope to just explain away that relationship, which was, yeah. I think, was trying to get like, oh, because we want Joshua to go do stuff. But Apparently, then he doesn't even he does do that stuff. much stuff. Apparently, no. there's stuff in this book, which I just like, noticed. <laughs> it's like, why are you in this book? Oh, just for this final sequence, like, so that you can have a say in this, like, school debate that we're having at the end. Oh, like, that was the worst. And that was the whole reason but- he's in the book. And I was like, can't he just be mayor of, like... Hell knows where until they call upon him for this. Like, and he can just travel there through the soft places. He doesn't have to be like milling about. Yeah, yeah. I thought he was going to go on a journey in this story and that didn't happen. And no, he doesn't yeah. really go. He barely goes anywhere. He, did, he uh, doesn't. Yeah. He's just there um, as for conversation with a character. Like he's there to provide a familiar, like sounding board for someone else. Yeah. And I, I will say that. If there's one upside to Helen not being in this book, it's that we don't get very much of the gross, snipey relationship that they've written between her and Sally, because she has one time at the start where it's very soon after she's left, where she refers to her as the little wife or something horrible like that. And then, you know, they don't talk about it anymore. 
because it's five years later and, you know, whatever's happened has happened. We don't know what that is. Mm. You see this in very plot-heavy books that just ignore the kind of human and relationship side of the thing. And you're like, look, this might all make logical sense, but doesn't make emotional sense. And that is also very important. So that was kind of terrible. But anyway, they're helping evacuate people. Soon after the eruption, they help a family. And there's always, I mean, one of the things about these books, I don't know if this happened to you, but every time you meet some new characters, even when they don't really have names, I'm always like, are they going to be like a new important character? Because there's so many characters in these books. Do I need to remember who this is? And I made lists of all the names of new people. But there weren't actually, there weren't that many new characters in this book. There's a lot of recurring characters now from the previous two. But I assume there'll be more. There were some, and they were important. But speaking of returning characters, one of the things that happens in that early stage of them rescuing people from Bozeman near the Yellowstone eruption is they hear a story about a mysterious young woman in pioneer gear who's helping people out, and they wonder if maybe that's a character from the previous book that we met at a party at the end, Roberta Golding who uh, I do like as a character, so I was glad to see mm. her back, but she doesn't get a big role. Anyway, so that's kind of suggested. They refer to her as the sensible young woman because <laughs> she doesn't give her name. Then uh, we find out that Maggie, captain of the uh, USS Benjamin Franklin, Lee Twain, that was at the centre of one of the plot lines of the previous book, kind of the main plot line, has not only come back from her mission to contact people in the ages of the uh, United States, which is the sort of place where the United States would be on all of the Earths to the west of Datum Earth. She's come back from that mission. She's been helping out, along with the rest of the military, this sort of rescue attempts and, and all of the emergency services that have been needed over this five years. And then we get to a point, not in this first chapter, but a little bit later, where she's about to be sent off on a new mission. So that gets set up in the first chapter. Joshua also goes back to Madison West 5, which is where his home that he grew up in has been relocated mm. after the nuclear bomb happened in Madison West on the date of Mirth. And he's watching TV there and realizes Roberta Golding is in with the president and the Washington crew. And that's when he wonders, oh, maybe she was the sensible young woman. Then there's a bit that I thought was going to go somewhere I was used to that feeling in this book. <laughs> I, I, to be fair, I only felt it about three times in this book, which oh. is probably two oh, times too that's many. That's lucky. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is going to, okay, now we're taking, oh, no, okay, that's not going to be the, can't wait for but, this purple pond scum to become like a significant, no, okay. <laughs> well, I, I'm talking about, we meet up again with Nelson as a Kiwi, the pastor and ex-scientist who we met briefly in the first book, but he sort of became more of a character in the second one. But he goes back to his old parish and he's talking to the pastor there, who's also his predecessor, and trying to counsel a local person who has become a member of a group called Not Those Feet, which (laughs) sounds like it should be a joke and maybe it is a bit of a joke. But basically this is a protest group who don't like the fact that the Catholic Church has said, you know what, we've been avoiding this question for a while, but we've changed our mind. The Catholic Church definitely has domain over all the other Earths. They're not like demon realms because they can see the writing on the wall that after the Yellowstone eruption, which has basically completely fucked the entire Earth's climate, Mm. lots of people are migrating off Datum Earth to go somewhere where it's not terrible. Um, And so the Catholic Church has gone, well, that's where the people are. We've got dominion over that as well. And this protest group, not those feet, are like, no, not in my England. And one of their members has actually gone so far as to go to the Vatican and try and assassinate the Pope, which is why they're talking about it. 
did the yeah, whole that thing. Was, that was that a really was cool. good scene. I think this chapter and, and this, this particular bit, I really enjoyed this conversation. I thought this conversation was fantastic. I love sci-fi religion conversation stuff. The possibilities that you can have for story is fantastic. But this first chapter was really promising and I was really enjoying it and it had really great characters in it. Yeah. Shock horror, Ben. But like all of the characters in this chapter that I was really connecting to did not show up again for about Yeah, we never chapters. hear about not those feet again. We <laughs> never hear about Eileen, the member of the group who yep. uh, Nelson is counseling and helping to move on with her life. Like that never comes up again in the Roberta rest of the book. Golding shows up maybe once or twice in the yeah. story after that. She's um, in the periphery and you never so spend any time just, with her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and Nelson's a great character. I really enjoyed his writing. I thought he was very yeah. empathetic and a, and a character that I wanted to follow. Silly me. Yeah. Just, you just <laughs> yeah, get that one section spend. near the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanted to spend more time with him as well. I want to spend more time with that crab civilization. Yes. Oh, don't. Hey, we'll come back to the crab civilization. <laughs> don't, don't spoil that. Make you crabby. But there's just two other things that set up in this first chapter, one of which is Sally Lindsay. This is in 2044. So this chapter, like, takes us in big leaps through five years of time. But by 2044, which is the year before most of the book is set, Sally Lindsay's, like, capturing a hunter who's been shooting trolls. A great description of how she's basically given him hives for the rest of his life by injecting him with some plant that she's found on some other world. But anyway, she gets a letter passed on to her from her father saying, I want you to come meet me at the Gap, which is the uh, the world where there's no earth. And to get some nice T-shirts. <laughs> yeah. I just want to go shopping. Mm-hmm. I need you to give me some advice. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the last thing that happens in this chapter is that on New Year's Day 2045, Joshua wakes up somewhere alone on a world in the High Megas by himself with a tremendous headache, but he has not been drinking even though it's New Year's Day. And he's like, what's causing this? And if we remember in the first book, one of the things that we learn about him is his mother was a natural stepper who during his birth accidentally stepped to another world. And then as soon as he was born, accidentally stepped back. And so immediately after he was born, he was alone on a world by himself. And then she manages to get back there somehow and retrieve him. But that moment seems to have meant that he is exceptionally sensitive to there being any other kind of intelligent life on a world that he's on. Mm. Um, and this is why he had these headaches during the first book when they were sensing this coming of this tremendous, intelligent, weird life form called First Person Singular, who we haven't heard of since. <laughs> we don't know what happened to them. No, we're done with that storyline for now. The last book, it all comes back. There's no exposition. It's just the end of every story that's been introduced. <laughs> I mean, to be it fair, Liz, be. we got a two sentences about it. I mean, I think we should be grateful, honestly. Yeah. Two sentences. <laughs> Oof. Luxury. He's wondering what's causing this. Why have I got this headache? There's nobody here. Why do I feel this pressure in my head? Go see your wife. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, that's why. He's feeling guilty. It's not any kind of weird supernatural thing. He's just like, oh, yeah, I spent New Year's Eve by myself on another planet (laughs) when I have a a wife and a son (laughs) who ostensibly I like. I don't know why I'm not with them. We never find out. Anyway, so that's sort of the setup of all of the different things that are kind of going to happen set up or just you know stuff yeah mm. but yeah there there are some things in there that we will never hear of again 
But let's try and do this in a sort of a structured way, because we could try and go through the whole book. We discovered during the Long War that doesn't really work with these books. No. But if there's any bits that jump out at you that I skip over when I'm trying to sort of recount these stories, let me know. Um, but let's do each storyline in turn. All right, should we do the titular one first, or, or what are we going to Well, do? I was thinking, yeah, let's do them in the kind of order that they kind of kick off in the book, which is the first one, which I've just called the actual Long Mars, <laughs> because that's what it's about. Yeah. Sally's invited by her father, Willis, to go and meet him at the Gap, and he says, I want to go to Mars, and I want you to come with me. It's just classic dad things. <laughs> I wouldn't know. But just, I trust you. Just a quick point. On, like, Wikipedia, they said the original title for this was The Long Childhood, which I think is a much more accurate name, but I can see why they changed it to The Long Mars, because it's a much more, like, oh, yeah, I want to pick that up That's and read it. That's a sci-fi-sounding cover. Yeah. 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 This is the start of this trip to Mars. Where she goes to Gap Space, which is the sort of space industry that's grown up mm-hmm. in, from memory, it's based in what would be England in that world, which is the world next to the Gap, the universe where the Earth has been destroyed by a rogue planet or something. And so all you've got to do to get into space is step one world further, and it makes space travel so much easier. Uh, and there's a huge industry in it now. And this is largely because the Earth was destroyed. There's this asteroid belt right there, and all of the industry seems to be interested in mining it, and they're not really interested in going to Mars. So the original Gap Space folks who were like, we can use this, we can go to the moon and Mars, it'll be really easy, they're still doing that, but none of the other people who've turned up and turned it into basically like weird space industry Las Vegas- That they know of. Give a shit about that. No, that they know of. Yes. that they, Well, we don't know either at this point in the book. Willis says he wants to go to Mars because he thinks that there is or has been intelligent life on Mars in the universe of the Gap. And that means, we haven't really explicitly gone into this much before this book, but that means there will be a long Mars. Like, you'll be able to step on Mars the way you can on Earth. And that is reliant on there being intelligent life on the planet. Now, this was an idea that has kind of been touched on in the previous two books, but it took me a little bit by surprise in this one. How did you feel about it? I was like, what? Why? <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I had the same reaction of being like, oh. <laughs> Did we know that? It was, why would it be dependent on that? Well, they kind of get into it because, you know, there's the whole thing where the stepper boxes don't actually step you. Like, you're doing it, but most people need the assistance of a device to do it. And then there are natural steppers who can do it without the box. But then, like, beagles can't do it even with a box and, like, all that sort yeah. of stuff. But that doesn't mean yeah. that, like, I don't feel like enough science has been done to say, like, how do you know that rocks aren't doing it or whatnot? We're not watching them all, all the time. Like, it's... That's fair. There could be dolphins stepping. We would never know. Dolphins are intelligent, though. I mean, but, I mean, like, inanimate objects or things. Like, I... Anyway, it took me by surprise because I, I didn't think that it hinged on... Yeah, it was a strange revelation because I didn't expect that to be the crux of the mechanic. And then I was sort of being like, oh, but it didn't really change anything necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting because it means you maybe won't be able to do it everywhere you go in the universe. Like you can do it on Earth, you can do it on Mars. Maybe you can't do it on Venus or the moon. Like you can't colonize a hundred moons. The potential for there to be a version of that world in which it could have supported intelligent life Mm. you know infinity venus x number would have intelligent life because i did have that thing where like one was like venus but then it cooled rather than exactly yeah yeah so So maybe that venus had like an ocean or something that did support intelligent life 
So could you could just use that excuse, I guess, to then say mm. that, well, all planets could potentially support intelligent life. Yeah. But th- then there's what we find out in this book, which is that the long Mars Marses are not in the same universes, so to speak, as the long Earth Earths. Yeah, that's they like they're on their own axis, but they cross over at the gap. I thought that was I thought it was interesting and like it agrees with things that are said in the first two books. Yeah. But I don't know that it was set up sufficiently that when they talk about it here, like the characters are all like, Yeah, we know that's the main theory. We think that's true. And we're all like, Is it? You never really <laughs> talk about this. So yeah, it was a bit weird. What they do talk about though is what their spaceships look like. That's true. Well, that's ex- that's interesting. And we it's have got interesting a question for a about while, that. and then then it just keeps going. <laughs> it, there's, yes, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Willis wants to go to Mars because he's searching for something there. He won't say what it is. He's so inscrutable. What an annoying jerk. Yeah, they they do set up wanting to punch him in the face very well. Yeah, Repeated. yeah, because we haven't met him in person before. We've just sort of heard Sally's stories about him, and now we meet him, and we're like, what an insufferable jerk. Anyway, but they need someone to go with them who's a trained astronaut. So they pick up Frank Wood, who is a delight. We loved him in the last book. They introduce the character, the tech specialist in that. And the book just hammers him. Like, it does not give that poor man a break. Like, they introduce him. And I think they make a joke about his weight, like, multiple times. She does not treat him with any sort of... There's nothing he does that is particularly offensive but everyone mm. hates him just because he's just a nerd. I think that's oh, you're the talking about Al, aren't you? Yeah, Al. Yeah. Um, and it was such a strange thing of being like, "Wow, she really hates this guy that she just met." It's mm. yeah, yeah, it's a bit rough. Interesting, and then and then yeah, introduced to a good character, I guess. And he was the one wearing the smoke smoke me a kipper t shirt. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Which I was like, you've held on to that. it's twenty forty five. You've held on to that for like fifty years. Like yeah. they did, they were not making those after the nineteen nineties. I think it would have been great if they had come back and spent any time at all on the return journey or like when they get back and he's wearing one that says Stoke Me a Clipper. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, good that's that a would... good deep cut. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, we'll explain that in the episode notes. We can't, we can't spend time on that now. We've got too much book to get through. Anyway, so they pick up Frank Wood. They're going to go to Mars. And yes, they do spend a lot of time on the technicalities of how that's going to work. So you step into the gap universe where they have built a satellite, which they call the brick moon. It's a space station. So they take a, a shuttle to get to the, the brick moon. They get set up and then they fly over three chapters to the Mars of the gap. And there's just three of them on the spaceship. It's Frank and Willis and Sally. They don't talk a lot. They have a few scenes of, you know, annoying each other, Mm. basically. Poor Frank. And when they get there, Frank's like, I'm on another planet. This is awesome. And we've really, I don't know about you. I felt this for Frank so much. I love this so much for him because his whole backstory Mm. is he was, he joined NASA. He was wanted to be an astronaut his whole life. And then just as he was sort of getting towards being able to be, you know, selected for a space mission, Step day happens and everyone's like, we don't need to go to space now. We've got a million like Earths to go to. And NASA basically completely collapses. They don't do anything except launch satellites. 
And then he finds out about Gap Space and tries to get involved there. And now he's finally getting to go on a space mission. He goes to Mars. <laughs> he's on the surface of Mars, which in this universe has got a thin atmosphere and supports primitive life. Like there's like weird cactus-like plants and there's some free water in some of the craters. Or fro- I think it's under ice, but it's there. You can access it. And just as he's planting a flag, which is a weird thing, by the way, like he just, it says he's declaring that it belongs to America because he thinks he's the first person there. Mm. But I'm like, no, no astronaut would do that. Like there's a treaty that says you Mm. can't claim anything in space. So I thought that was weird, but he's doing that. And just as he's doing that, some Russians show up. (laughs) It turns out they've been here all along and Willis knew about them as well. He's such a joke. Just, just communicate. Yeah. It, it, it sets him up as a terrible character, but also that scene was was fantastic. I really yes. enjoyed it. I laughed. So I read it on Kindle and I also listened to it on, on audiobook on, on oh, Audible. Right. So there's a few things that with the voices that we will we will get to this. Uh but this <laughs> uh-huh. was read so well. Is it Michael Fenton? No, I might be thinking of the wrong one. I, I think you're right. Because it's not Stephen Briggs. Is it Michael Fenton Stevens? Is that the guy? Yes, I think you're right. It was a really charming section though, like, cause it was just, you learn so much just through the interaction that Sally has with yep. these guys. And it's fun. Like, it's just a great sequence. It's cause we actually get some characterization for once. Like, we actually get to spend some time with some characters and, and see people interact with each other. Because for the most part, I feel like either most people are assholes to each other or they sort of just exist in their own sort of bubble and they, and they mm. do their thing but they don't necessarily have a lot of interaction like we, we saw that a lot in the long earth with you know the first between joshua and and, and lobsang and sally as well and we don't necessarily have that a lot here we do have that i guess with maggie's crew but mm. um mm. even there it's a lot of like maggie thinks this and maggie is doing that like so it's, the it's few, internalized few moments of character interaction very precious throughout yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the Russian crew were just so much fun <laughs> as well. I wanted to hang out with those guys because yep. they're like, oh, Russia is fucked now. Like the, <laughs> the whole climate thing is ruined everything. We've been here yep. for ages and now there's no Russia to go home to. Like in their base, they're watching like videos of old ice hockey games or mm-hmm. something. And you're like, oh, Between guys. Canada and Russia. Yeah. And talking about the Nobel Prize he should have been winning and never will because like none of his scientific discoveries. He's not going to get tenure because the universities <laughs> are not doing a thing. He's oh, not going to so be cited in paper. But it's like you get all of this and like and the world comes from that as well you see a lot of what has happened just through their like little drunken complaints we get some good cultural pastiches here as well of like when they're talking about russia and being like well it's always like this for russia right you know first we had the (laughs) sars and then you know then we had hitler and napoleon it was yeah it was such a good moment and it really felt good and human i guess in that bit also i I did want to mention getting to mars was a surprise and it was a genuine surprise to me because i couldn't tell if i was going to get uh false advertised by this title so when we actually got to mars i was like thank god we're here three chapters of traveling <laughs> we got we're, here we're there. we got I there. Was excited yeah. and in one sense it is the hope that we always go to space and sci-fi and that's the thing that always gets me going so you know mm. getting to it and and feeling that and it is that baxter space right it's the stuff that i love of his stuff and it could have been like the expanse or something where you spend a long time on the spaceships like debating about where to go and what to do and how <laughs> you're going to get off the anywhere. spaceship. Yeah. But it wasn't that. I, I really liked that. Yeah. Mm. 
And I think, look, I really, this is one of the two storylines that I really liked. I really enjoyed the Mars stuff, particularly the start. But I, I suspect where we're going to diverge in our opinion is after this. Because after they hang out with the Russians for a little while, Sally goes and meets with them and they feed her and give her some vodka. And then, you know, she crashes the night at their place and then goes back to the other two who have assembled the gliders they've brought with them. And the gliders, you know, it's a cool idea. But I agree with you, Liz. Like, they just spend a lot of time telling us about them. Mm. And every one of these books has a little exploded diagram of one of the things in the book. So, the first one had the stepper box. The second one had the twain. And this one has the glider that they take to Mars. They have two of them. And they are cool. And they're going to use those to fly around on Mars as they step. This is where they figure out that these two universes don't intersect. Because when they step east back towards where they should be able to pick up signals from gap space, they're like, we can't because there's no life on this Earth. This is another Mars entirely. And so if we want to go home, we have to come all the way back to the Mars of the gap. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting, Mm. but weird. I thought that was good because it introduced like really like tense stakes. I was like, well, what's going to stop them? And then we later get to a bit where like there's there's stakes. I'm like, oh no, they're not going to be. But no, it's fine. It's fine. It's no worries. It's all good. <laughs> well, it's not entirely fine. And it's all resolved within like a few pages. But like they yeah. saw this really good, like, oh, we only have one way back. And, you know, like that's like a really good plot thing to be like, oh, like we're going to have some problems. But yeah. I will I'd- say that the way they said that, though, felt very blasé of being like, oh, it's it's just another Mars. And so I didn't think there would be any tension there. I thought, oh, mm. this is going to get resolved, isn't it? <laughs> It's not going to be a plot point. And I, I don't think it was. I think at the very end, skipping ahead is just they get back, right? Yeah. It's just. Yeah, they shortcut that. They shortcut that. But in this instance, I feel like it works. Emotionally, that makes sense. At the that point we'll in get the story. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, they then spend their time stepping east across Mars. And basically, they they do a pretty good job of sort of summing it up as, like, on Earth, you have lots of life and there's all these different possibilities. There's no intelligent life on most Earths. But every now and then you come across a Joker Earth, which is really weird, and there's no life or something. Whereas on Mars, it's kind of the other way around. Most of them are like the Mars that we're used to from our Earth. Mm. It's kind of devoid of life. It's too dry and cold and small. But every now and then you come across a Joker where there is life, and they see these sort of repeating patterns of life. And there's these cool descriptions of, like, Giant whale creatures with 12 flippers swimming through the loose silt sand and dragon um, the fire-breathing land dragons. Yeah, they oh, were I cool. I love land dragons. Yeah. That was awesome. And the crustacean people who, like, sail around on their sand yachts, like, whaling them. Captain Jerkface is like, yeah, let's give these guys some steppers and, like, I'm not going to oh, learn yeah. any lessons from my past and there'll be no consequences <laughs> for anyone else of my actions. I want to look at these monoliths, so let's just give these guys some technology. He could just given them some food. It would have been fine. So that was one of the moments in the story that I sort of took a step back and thought, Really? Would he do that? I don't. That seems like a big well, thing to do from him. And he does seem he, like a jerk, but he didn't seem like an idiot. I couldn't get mm. what his motivation was. Because is he like yeah. sort of like a everyone deserves to have access to everything guy? Because he's very withholding of information and in his own things, if that's the case. Or is he just like, oh, you know, like they were, he doesn't think ahead. to, con- But he thinks ahead so far. Yeah. Like, I don't get it. My read on it was his thinking ahead was the only thing I know for sure I can offer to any intelligent enough life that I want to trade with that they won't already have is a box that helps them step. Because if they're intelligent enough to be able to do it themselves, I don't need to trade with them. I just talk to them. But if I need to give them something important and they're small, 
but huge impact. That was my feeling. And uh, he just didn't care. He's like, I'm not sticking around here. It's not going to bother me. They can already do it. They just need help. It's like when I gave it to people on Earth. I actually went back and reread that chapter when I got to a bit later on. So I was like, oh, I didn't actually think this would happen. I kind of sort of semi forgotten about this because there's quite a few chapters in between and a lot of other stuff happening in the other storylines. And I, when I went back, Frank at the time is like, oh, those guys you gave the stepper box to, they're really giving that other guy a real hard time. He looks pretty pissed off. I hope nothing happens yeah. with that guy. <laughs> sure hope that doesn't yeah. sort of come back in the plot in some yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. At the time, I was like, okay, I don't think that's what, what could happen. But also the book trains you to sort of after a while, it's like, oh, this big thing that might happen, and then it doesn't. So, like, why would this be one of the, like, yeah. 20 things they set up that actually becomes a thing? And it's so weird yeah. that this is the one that does as well. Yeah. Because when they get about three million steps east of Gap Mars, they find the thing that Willis has been here looking for, which is classic sci-fi, old school, a space elevator. And Willis's logic here is, you know, reasonable. He reasons that, Mars, even on its best days, only becomes habitable by life for short periods of time, like relatively short to Earth, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years, but not hundreds of millions of years like on Earth. So any intelligent life that arises or evolves on Mars is going to realize this. They're going to know they have to get off the planet to survive. And also because of the way Mars works, they kind of have got a bit of a leg up because it's got slightly lower gravity and the um, atmosphere is thinner. Leg up. Very good. They, <laughs> they're going to be able to build a space elevator easier than we can on Earth, but they're still going to need to develop really impressive technology to make it work. And he wants to sample that technology to give Earth a head start on making their own space elevators on all of the step versions of Earth. He's like, imagine that. It gives you free access to space. It means you can launch like solar energy collection satellites, like you can have clean energy right from the start. You won't have pollution. You won't have like wars. You'll have plentiful energy and everything you need. It's important. And he's got this real utopian vision for why he wants to do this. But he's one of those people who's like, yeah, what I want is really good. It's going to benefit everyone, but has no compulsions about whatever kind of things he fucks up or wrecks along the way to get it. Well, it's because he only thinks about everyone, not individual yeah. people ever. Yes. But at the same time, again, this is one of those things that just pulled me up of being like, they're trying to depict the idea of intelligent people are just inherently assholes, right? Yeah. So- and to a certain extent, I, I get where that's going, but they're also making decisions that aren't great. And that being the reason for the, you know, being an asshole, it sort of fails that, that logic test of being, well, why didn't he share that with the other two? It just hmm. makes no sense to me that he would keep that because he's not trying to keep that. He's literally trying to bring it back. Yeah. So it's these decision-making steps that don't make a lot of sense to me in order to make us feel that this person is just the worst. And he is just the worst. And I agree, because like, they're currently there for their mission of, like, he wants something and they're willing to yeah. go along with it. Why not just say, I'm looking for a space elevator? Yeah. I don't, it doesn't make sense. That Unless the goal was inherently selfish that he wanted to keep hidden, then that makes sense to keep hidden. Mm. Or, 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 you know, some devious thing that he wanted to get out of Mars, then sure. But if it's yeah. something that is beneficial, it just seems a weird sort of step to just not say anything. Step. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the only thing that makes sense to me is maybe he knew that someone would have a way of getting off the planet, mm. but that he wasn't 100% sure it would be a space elevator and he wanted to, you know, Sherlock Holmes style, 
I'm not explaining my answer until I have the proof that I'm correct kind of deal, you know. Yeah. That's a good one. Which I guess it could be. But no, he seems pretty sure that he was looking for a space elevator. So, I mean, he doesn't say that until they find one. You know, it's like you he was very know. interested in those yeah. weird monoliths. I did like the way that that was weird and unexpected. And then when they try to go near it, they can't because something similar to the pressure that Joshua feels from other minds is being used to keep them away. Like they get these intense headaches and they have to turn back. I thought that was cool that like, you know, there's this vanished ancient civilization that's managed to turn that into like a weaponized thing. Mm. I think that's straight up one of my favorite bits in the entire book. And you know what yeah. would have been great? <laughs> Any followed up about that. <laughs> yeah. Any, what did they say? <laughs> Well, he's got it. He maybe he did get a picture of what's on the monolith. So you never know. Maybe it will come back in the next book. The the, the last the book. Is just, yeah, I'm really hoping that the last book is just everything paid off, like all of the things just jammed with vignettes. If it does, yeah. then I'll be very impressed at the setup. But I'm also very annoyed that within an in, like a novel, if you set something up, there should be at least some payoff, and I, you know, not having any from the Long Earth and being like, oh, there are these forerunners. I love that idea. And then you get it again here and I'm thinking, all right, this is the one. We're going to get more dope. Especially given the consequences of what like, happened to get those images. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. Yeah. It just seemed odd. Let's get into that because once they find the space elevator, they fly towards it in their gliders. Unfortunately, the base of it is not on the mountainous volcano where they've predicted it probably will be because that's the shortest distance from the planet to space. It, well, it is there, but it's the bottom of it is sunk like 20 miles world into the planet's surface, which kind of flies in the face of the logic of why it's here in the first place. But I guess if you want to sink the base of it 20 miles below the Earth, you might as well do it five miles closer to the atmosphere, right? So, it still helps. Anyway, they go down there. They decide they're going to leave one glider and one person on the surface for safety. So, Frank stays behind. Sally and Willis go down. They do find a bit of the thing. They also find a crashed spaceship with an alien corpse. Mm -hmm. Big skull. Presumably, yeah, with a weird big skull, which has clipped the space elevator line, which means it's frayed a little bit, which means they can collect easily a sample of what it's made of so they can figure out how it works and how to make it at home. But by the time they are leaving, the other glider has been destroyed because the Martian crustacean guy, the prince, as Frank called him, who got pissed off because the other guys got stepper boxes and were treating him like shit, managed to steal one and one of the sort of protective environment suits that he gave them to go with it. And he sailed his ship across however many Earths to find them. To get revenge. And he's just, like, sailed straight through the other glider and smashed it to bits. Crab Terminator. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, he's terrifying. I love this guy. Like, I was- uh, This was very cinematic. I'm like, oh, my God, I can see this. And then he starts, like, trying to shoot down the other glider that Willis is flying around with these, like, living rocket worm things. Yeah. (laughs) That was so cool. It was an amazing sequence. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and he damages the other glider. Sally and Frank end up on the ground- while this guy's coming back and they decide, split up. You can't get both of us. And they run in opposite directions and Willis is flying around and he's like, who am I going to rescue? And there's, it's <laughs> made very clear he's weighing this up and he decides to rescue Sally and the crustacean prince gets up to Frank and just brutally murders him by smashing his spacesuit because they're all wearing spacesuits because even though there's a limited atmosphere on a lot of these Marses that they're stopping on, it's not breathable and he dies and they leave him behind. And then they're going home and um, they've got what they came for. Willis says, I need you to take us back. You said earlier there are soft places, like shortcuts through the worlds here, like there are on Earth. 
and you know how to find those and use them. I need you to take us back to the Gap Mars. And that's when she realizes that's the only reason you invited me mm-hmm. was a backup escape plan. And it's also the only reason you saved me when you realized that you couldn't fly back by yourself. And if you'd realized you could have flown back, you might have saved Frank because he's a better pilot than me. He's like, yeah, rationally, of course. And that was pretty brutal. So but- this bit I thought worked for his yeah. character in the idea that this makes sense. He's being very mercenary, very rational and kind of awful. And it worked. And I do love this sequence, and it, and it is done very cinematically. It felt like something out of John Carter. I, you know, yes. I, I, I saw everything in it, and it was great. Would have loved more crab people, you know. Yes. Just, I have a feeling they will come back. Surely, surely. If, 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 <laughs> don't promise me this, Ben. This, this is, you I can't, can't make any promises. <laughs> we know what these books are like. Are these the crab people who are the other crab people from the other storyline, like who have somehow also like this is a space elevator going? No, there. I I actually that was my one quibble with it. Actually, is that they decided that these Martians would be crustacean-like people. They're clearly not Earth crabs because they have like twelve limbs, like most of the Mars creatures that they see. But I would have liked it if they decided they looked like something else because there was that similarity, yeah. and I'm like, that's muddying the waters a little, guys. Also, like, you mentioned the alien at the base, which. I was just thinking the space jockey from Alien, and we don't know anything about that. No. Also, right? Sure no, there's not back. really any clues. They describe its skull that. and stuff. Like, okay. I, I don't think that's anything we've seen before. Yeah. I have this dark theory that the only reason that's there is so that the cable could be a bit frayed so it was easier for them to take a sample home, and we're going to hear nothing more about yeah, that spaceship probably. or that race. No, There's just come a reason on, for it to be frayed. That can't be true. Because like, there's also something living down there, but... That's true. There's the devolved Martian mm-hmm. creatures, which surely can't be the intelligent Martians. Like, the intimation they is that many yeah. hundreds of thousands or millions of years since mm. this civilization built a space elevator and got off Mars. But there's some creatures living in the bottom of the pit time that machine. now don't even have eyes because it's so dark down there. But they do seem to understand, like, there's that bit where Sally sees one and kind of, like, says, I'm not here to hurt you. And it, I think the prose says something like it seemed to understand her and then it ran off. And you're like, why don't you have a chat? <laughs> I was like, oh, it's going to go somewhere here. Because, like, she had that, like, sinister feeling which turned out to be, like, that guy chasing them across worlds. But I thought there was going to be, like, an underground civilization that had managed to... Mm survive this and that the planet wasn't actually it was going to be like that canon printer ad you know where like the, dro- <laughs> the drone or like the lands yeah. the, the earth space thing lands on mars and they see nothing but it's actually a bustling metropolis and there's just like a person holding a perfect printout of a desolate mars in front oh, of the camera yeah i do remember yeah. that so i thought it was going to be like that kind of vibe <laughs> that but commercial, yeah. yeah that's amazing i hadn't thought of that but um i agree i think the father daughter stuff in that sequence was really good mm. i just felt like all of the really good stuff was rushed mm-hmm. like we only got like quickly like here we go like a page of this and again purple slime gets page upon page upon page and i guess i you know when i say baxter i, I often rely on saying that because I've, I've read more baxter than i have pratchett so whenever i get into these sequences where he sacrifices character development for world building that is something that is is very typical of, of a lot of his his work. Not his best works, but that happens a lot where he spends, you know, a whole chapter discussing a particular science fiction mechanic and then you sort of forget why you're there in the book hmm. for a bit and then you get back to it, which is emblematic of a lot of that kind of science fiction, I guess. But yeah, in this one, it, it, it sort of hit me a bit harder and like it felt a bit worse. 
Yeah, because there was that great bit I thought that was interesting where he's like, of course that's why I did it. And he snarled, like he's like, mm-hmm. like grow up, he snarled. Because yeah. like yeah. normally he's just like one Even level. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And he gets a bit annoyed there. And I was like, okay, there's like a bit of a chink in his armor there. And then she just does what he wants. I mean, I'd have been tempted to threaten to throw his precious sample out of the thing, but then Frank would have died from nothing and all of this kind of stuff. But mm. also, like, I think there's a lot to explore, and maybe it will be in a subsequent book, of, like, should we be taking this technology back to Earth, giving them the chance to spread out even further than the long Earth? Like, I feel like Sally is so dismissive of how humans have treated the long Earth, which used to be, like, her family's mm-hmm. private, well-cared-for sort Narnia. of thing. Yeah. Um, and till her dad ruined it, so she'd feel some personal responsibility to that. I thought she'd have some more ethical qualms about further expanding that out into space through the space elevator technology. So I thought that she would have a bit of an issue with that. I get the impression she doesn't really care about things that aren't the long Earth. Yeah. Like, if humans go to other Marses or the moon or space, she's like, I don't care. I'm not going. <laughs> like, I, I feel like there's that. But also, I think... There's not a lot of impetus for that. Like, they don't really need to explore space on those other planets. Mm-hmm. And it, I buy the idea that space elevator technology will mostly be useful on Earth in the long Earth mm. for putting satellites into orbit at very low cost and getting free energy or, or very high efficiency energy collection, that sort of stuff, which is his excuse or reason for doing it. So, I kind of bought that. I I, I didn't have that problem. Hmm. I guess I don't feel like I have that great a grasp on Sally, so I would have just thought that yeah. she's just a bit... I just would have thought that would have at least given her pause, but it depends on what her underlying motivation or thought is about human race spreading out in different yeah. directions. If it's just the long earth, then I completely buy But I thought... Because like, mm-hmm. even Frank has all this stuff about how she's dismissive of humans mm-hmm. in a way that... Different to the way that her father is dismissive about them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that she'd just be a bit sort of like, nah, stop them spreading around everywhere. Yeah, I th- I think I got I got sort of a similar sense to to Ben in this one in the idea that I felt that she was dismissive in a way that was more personal, more sort of isolationist, right? Like I don't care what they do and mm. and sort of I'm annoyed that they intruded on my personal space, which is also sort of a a weird sort of character thing as well and and <laughs> it didn't necessarily endear me to Sally's motivation here, but yeah, I, I think like it sort of makes sense that she wouldn't care. An interesting thing about the space elevator, while it being the goal of Willis and while it being like a tangible thing that makes sense to the plot, it isn't a very exciting sort of end goal for the <laughs> long Mars. In the idea that when we got there, I I really and I know I did this in the long war, I was expecting 40k and I didn't I got a dust dome. But in this one, <laughs> like I genuinely thought, oh, we're going to get a big reveal, going to get a big alien civilization reveal or something. And I thought the monolith was the midpoint of that story and it was going to lead into this, you know, this big reveal. We get the space elevator and I don't think it was inconsistent. I think it made sense and it was good, but it did leave me a bit. Oh, (laughs) Hmm. you know, oh, okay, right. But at least like the other two plot lines had a huge, wait, no. Okay. All right. Look, look, once once they get back home, it's very. I mean, it basically ends right once they leave with their bit of space elevator. Uh, that's it. That, yep. that that that's it's the end of the story. Um, in the same chapter, they go back 
to Gap Mars. They get back in their spaceship. They go back to the brick moon. They go back home. Sally just leaves her dad uh, after getting him home. Basically doesn't talk to him. Also, um, listeners, Ben's description of this is longer than the books. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And then she goes to visit Frank's family to tell him that he died being an astronaut, being killed by a Martian <laughs> on another version of Mars. Like, how do you have that conversation? That is a weird yeah. thing to be telling someone. I don't even know. Like, it's not clear to me how public knowledge it is that there is life on Mars. Like, I don't think it is. Like, people know about trolls. They know that, you know, there's these other creatures that live in the long Earth. But this is another thing entirely. And so, she goes to tell his family and she also, in a nice touch, and again, this is very just briefly touched on, she also goes to Johansson's, Monica Johansson's grave to tell her. Which mm. I thought was nice because nice. I miss I miss Monica. She was one of my favorite characters in the first book, and then she dies in the second Every one. Every time like, no. she's mentioned, it makes me miss that she was a great character and she had real good like humor and good characteristics mm. and was fun to read. Every time I got interacted with a character that wasn't fun to read, here I was like, ah, Spooky Jansen. I, miss I mean, you. all my favorite characters are being killed off. <laughs> Frank, yeah, Frank. Who's next? Same, same with Frank. I I really liked Frank. Yeah. And he added a lot. Mm. Yeah. If you add anything to the plot, they're going to get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Your time is limited. <laughs> Let's get on to the next storyline, though, because they will eventually kind of join up. I don't think they name it in the book, but I called it the West 200 million mission. So in the previous book, we had the Chinese expedition to go 20 million steps east of Datum Earth. Who wants to go a quarter of a billion over there? Some- there's something there. Like, who wants to be a millionaire? You, you know, something. Oh, I see. I see where you're going with this. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, in this one, they have a dual mission. They're going to send Maggie on the new Twain, Neil Armstrong 2, named after the previous Twain, the Neil Armstrong, which was a deep exploration Twain that went missing. Seems deeply cursed to call it after that one. I know. It's like the Titanic 2. It (laughs) seems like a bad idea, right? But anyway, they're going to send her with that ship and its sister ship, the Eugene A. Cernan. Uh, which is nice because it's like named after the first mm-hmm. man to step on the moon and the last man to step on the moon. Mm-hmm. And there's a little nod to that in the speech that President Cowley gives when he says, I'm sure you all Googled why we called it that when you came here. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm going to Google it now. <laughs> I need to know. He's a good character as well. Like mm. he, every time he showed up, I was enjoying it and it was a good moment and mm. it felt real. You did mention the Chinese mission. And I think this is the point where I raised my hand and started yelling at the audiobook. So there are things that audiobook narration does. And this is a thing that goes across all audiobooks. But specifically in this one pulled me up and how badly it was done. Generally, it's a pretty good narrator for the book. But when he does the Chinese accents, oh, man, there's a huge reliance on pastiche and stereotyping going on. And when it's done badly, it's done very badly. I just wouldn't do it. I like speaking as a voice actor. I just wouldn't do an accent. If you don't feel that you can be genuine, then don't do it. Because there is that huge disconnect for me when I started listening to it and I just cringed. Physically, just just could not oh, um, get yeah. through those parts. So please do not rely on these tropes. They are bad. And um, this is a thing that I don't want to just accuse this book of. It, it is a thing that goes through a lot of audiobooks. And I have been reading a lot of audiobooks recently. 40K, there you go, another reference. Uh, this is really becoming a thing. Do not intend. I'm not, I'm not starting a 40K <laughs> podcast, all right? I'm there's there. already, there's already a few. Subliminally doing it. Yeah, just slowly, yeah, teasing it out. But... It's the same thing. And every time they, they sort of bring out a Asian accent, air quotes, it's just very offensive. 
he also does a lot of other pastiche <laughs> accents here, but because it's rooted in a, in a huge history of stereotyping, it's something that shouldn't happen. And seeing it again was a bit, yeah. And it, and this one, I think it was done <laughs> in a very sort of maybe a bit tone deaf way. So yeah. Yeah. I haven't even heard it and I'm like armadilloing internally. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. It's not good. Yeah. Uh, that's unfortunate. Okay, well, so I guess we're not recommending the audiobook for <laughs> yeah. that reason, even though otherwise it sounds like it was pretty good. It was good. Yeah, I but, think the audio direction was good. There is a lot of that, like, when it's an American, everyone sounds like they just come from Alabama. But, like, you know, and it feels like the accenting in this book is quite a lot in general. Um, Like, when you get the Russian characters as well, it's, it's you know, there's a lot of that going on. Don't think I can recommend it. <laughs> good to know. But the Chinese mission previously went 20 million steps to the east, which is the furthest anyone has ever been. This mission is going to try and do 10 times that in the other direction. They're going to go to the west way further than Joshua and Lobsang went in the first book on the journey. And on the way, they're also hoping to find the lost Neil Armstrong one. So yeah. that's their dual mission is exploration and rescue. Look, I was so pleased that there was a big storyline for Maggie in this book because I love her. She's great. Maybe not as great as I remember. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, I like Maggie. And then sometimes I'd be reading her chapters and I'm like, really? That's your, you're doing that? Okay. All right. Most of the time she was great. But every now and then I was just like, oh. yeah, I, I was really glad to see her come back too. I liked the concept of this. And I think this and the Mars mission both had lots of really great moments. Yes. Like when they mm. came to interesting worlds, those were some of my favorite parts of the books and some of the most imaginative ones. Like the world building there, I could have read even more about. I just think that there was just a lot of in-between that I can't quite put my finger on that just felt like it wasn't necessary. And also like her character, it, again, I couldn't get a grasp on her in a way that I felt like I previously had. And like Shimi, the cat robot thing, didn't need to be there, contributed nothing. Yeah, I felt the exact same about it. I, I was thinking the cat was going to be a thing. You know, there was going to be a reveal again in the story of some tech or something that Black was involved in or something like that, but that didn't pan out. Maggie's character to me felt like a vehicle for the mm. story where I think that she lost a lot of her personality because she was the driver of the story in one sense. Mm. And you, you get that sense when you're just a camera for the audience. Um, mm. And I felt that a lot with her where... When she was in conflict with other characters, it was good. But I think that when she wasn't, she was just berating. Yeah, because I also like some of the other members of the crew. I mean, the only ones we spend any real time with are Mac, Mm. her best friend on the crew, who's also the medical officer on board, who's got that kind of military doctor kind of deal. Snowy? Yes, and Snowy, the beagle who they pick up. I got to confess, though, I got my numbers mixed up. And when I saw the world that they were planning to stop on, which was Earthwest 1,617,524, I was like, oh, that's rectangles. That's the place with the extinct dinosaur civilization <laughs> and the weird ray guns and the radiation. Yep. Yes, more rectangles. Yeah. And then they went there and I'm like, oh, no, that's right. The beagles live just next door to rectangles. <laughs> I've got the wrong number. They're quite close. So it was I a can't bit, believe you remembered either oh. of those, to be honest. I was just kind of like, oh, look, a string of numbers might, means nothing to my brain. I mean, look, this is why I didn't get it right. It's like I didn't remember the number exactly. I was just like, oh, yeah, 1.6 million. That's like where rectangles has got to be. And then, no, it wasn't there. And I, I was quite pleased when they picked up Snowy. I'm like, that's a cool idea. Yeah. I, he was fun. And um, he added to the plot. Like, he, he did various yeah. things. There was some was payoff great. to this character. <laughs> yeah. And it linked back to the things. previous books. And yeah. it was just, that was, that was a beautiful piece of writing. 
Mm. And there's a few other things that link back to the books because she's also got some of the officers from the Chinese 20 million mission, including our friend from that book, the Lieutenant Wu Yusai, who doesn't get a lot to do. Like, she's cool, but she doesn't do much in this book. She's just sort of there. I think she's setting up for what she's going to do in whatever next story Some dark things lie ahead for her in Shangri-La. Oh, probably. Creepy, (laughs) lecherous billionaire has got his eyes on her, like, uterus. Uh, yeah, that was some oh, weird d- comments oh. at the end of that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. There's some other stuff like that in this book too, which we'll get to when we get to the third <laughs> storyline. But anyway, this she's there. Some of the other Chinese officers are there because they've contributed technology that lets them step even faster. And she's brought the family of trolls that were on the Benjamin Franklin, although they almost never appear and have almost nothing to do with the plot, which is sad. And she finds out that the very mysterious... Previously only mentioned, never an actual character in the plot. Like, we've seen him on TV in the books. We've heard about him, but we've never met him. Douglas Black, the uh, reclusive technology millionaire, who I always thought was going to turn out to, like, be secretly lobsang in disguise. Um, but it's not. It's not that at all. Um, cool, he, he is along for the ride. Part of his payment for helping finance this mission and set up these twains with the US government is he gets to ride along because he's looking for something and he's not saying what he's looking for either. There's a lot of that in this book. And it turns out it isn't very interesting as no. a as a side No, note. so they don't spend that much time on it. So that's probably <laughs> for the best. Extraordinarily predictable. Yeah. He's one of those characters that when he showed up, I was like, oh, this guy, you know, like, oh, we've heard a lot about him. He's gonna be really interesting. He was <laughs> he was not no, he's, not no, he's an old rich guy who doesn't want to die. That's his whole plot. Line. You know, he could have been a robot, man. He could have been something. He could have, you know, been an alien. But he Philip wasn't. could have actually been him, and he was, you know, this just there was all there this was so many possibilities. Yeah, uh, yeah, he could have been a cat. Yeah, but he was just an old rich white guy, and yeah. was really disappointing. Yeah, he just wants to find a nice resort town to be old and rich in. And he didn't do anything in. particularly villainous. No, or interesting. Except or good. Uh, there's a promising moment where it looked like he was going to like hoard all the oxygen that they needed, but then that just sort of was nothing. <laughs> <right>. Also, <laughs> that just set up the end point of his goal, basically, and it was yeah. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. There were a few things set up at the start of this storyline. Again, it, I thought we're going to go some places. I I didn't actually find it a problem that they didn't in this instance. Like the whole thing where there's some disquiet between the Chinese crew on board and the American crew. But suddenly they're fine. But then they're fine. Like, she basically says, look, get that guy to go in and work with him and they'll sort it out. I did really like the section that showed her leadership style, like, right mm-hmm. near the beginning mm-hmm. that talked about how she, like, brought about acceptance of the trolls by, like, making, hearing them sing a reward. So, like, there was, like, a lot of stuff early on that set up why she's such a good leader and why her team is so harmonious and yeah. there's mm-hmm. little details about how she'd put a freeze on their wages so they couldn't accidentally bet it all away. So, like, there was little nice details like that scattered throughout, which I thought were really well done. And they mentioned, like, there was a line where they, they talked about specifically the way that she commanded and the idea that she reacted because she believed that it should happen first and then she comes in rather than try and predict what was going to happen, which was good and it, and it made sense. I don't think she had a ton of opportunities to flex that muscle in the story, like maybe one other time at the end, but the setup was that first problem and then that was it. Why couldn't they let us see Mac fixing that snake? Because they set that, that up like... Cool. Yeah, they're like, well, that'll be really good. And I was like, oh, it's going to be dangerous. He needs mm-hmm. some gloves. And then we just don't see it. I was like, oh, I guess he just yeah. did it at some point. All right. Because, and just in case, well, there may be people listening who haven't read this because <laughs> given our comments, we can understand why you might not. <laughs> but the, um, 
But th- basically this mission and the Mars plotline, maybe this is why I like them so much. They have that element of journeying and exploration yep. that the first book had so much of that I loved, where they're Absolutely. going to all these weird earths that nobody's ever seen before and seeing things that are not like life on Earth. And they do encounter a crab civilization, which that is was- acknowledged at the back of the book, is directly lifted from the science of Discworld. Which is so good to see the Great Leap Sideways happening again. That was great. I love the crab civilization. But they keep going. They go through bands of worlds with no life. Bands of worlds with the only life is like the purple Purple scum that you were talking Mm. about. The slime. And worlds where there isn't even any oxygen. I thought the purple slime was going to come back because there's a bit of like a purple something on Mars. Well, it does. It does come back. Because they go through a purple slime band and then they find some other worlds and then they go through some more purple slime. No, I meant like it comes back plot wise. <laughs> As in, I thought there was going to be like, oh, actually, this is like the end point. Like, this is no. actually an invading force that's stepping across different worlds and actually making its way into Mars. Because, like, you wouldn't expect that the villain be purple slime. It's going to turn out they need the purple slime to make the space elevator. <laughs> well, actually, like, the purple slime is the villain in the My Little Pony movie, isn't it? So, like, it could be. You mean the old school one? Yeah, where, like, they're, like, flooded by purple slime and they need the flying oh, yeah. ponies to come in and, like, make this purple slime go away. I, we've talked about this on the podcast before, <laughs> I remember. But, yeah, they do this exploration and there is that great bit where they're on the world where there's no oxygen but there's life anyway and it's weird life, including, like, a weird flying ribbon snake that has acid for blood and, like, Love tries that. to attack the ship. So and good. That's yeah. when Ed Cutler, and this is the other thing that I loved about this, is that they set this up so the captain of the other ship that's going with Maggie, she's definitely in charge of the mission, but the captain of the other ship is Ed Cutler, the guy who nearly started a war at the end of the long war. And if only he had. No, I didn't want him to. Sorry, I mean, good that he didn't. But, like, for the title, for the plot. Look, I get, I, yeah, I get that. But also, I'm glad he didn't. He's a loose cannon. He obeys orders, but he also wants to shoot people. Like, that's his, di- and so- there's that big sequence where the acid snake thing goes on the side of the ship and instead of just leaving it alone, he sticks his hand with his, you know, sidearm into one of the collection things on the side of the ship and shoots it and it falls off and they have to, like, tackle him to stop him from, like, I love trying to finish thing. it off. It was great because he did actually do it and it was a good outcome, but also he's just a walking stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. To the point where they make fun of him by making references to Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. And talking about purity of essence. And you're like, okay, we get it. (laughs) There's a lot. Yeah. That whole sequence was good where he's like, oh, you know, we're going to go down to this planet for some R&R. And the guy's like, did you read any of the science? He's like, of course not. And he's like, just acid. Everything is acid. (laughs) Yeah, you can't can't go there. (laughs) Before we get to the crux of this story, there's some other stuff that happens along the way. And the thing that really... I had a lot of trouble getting past this. Maggie realizes there's something going on between Mac and Snowy, and they have to work together to take Ed down, and they're still not happy with each other. And so she makes Mac sit down and say, look, what is the problem? Why don't you two get along? You've clearly got, there's some beef between you. What is it? And Mac says, after our last mission together, I got stationed on the Beagle planet. And what we decided was the problem with their culture is they have too many babies and it fucks up everything. So we decided we'd put some drugs in all the food on the continent to make them have less babies. And then they decided they were cursed and they figured out it was us and they had more wars. So we left. And you're like, that is fucked up. There's no universe in which that is even remotely an okay thing. And so believable. I found it so hard to get past because I loved Mac as a character and I could not believe that he would be on board for this. And it made him so much less sympathetic. I thought, as in, like, he's one of those guys who gets swept up in the, oh, I'm yeah. 
paternalistic doing yes. something for the greater good. This is the greater good <laughs> argument. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, Ben, to me, it was, it was weird. I had the opposite reaction where it was like, this could totally happen. This was an actual thing. And it actually made him more human and made him feel more like a character in the book. I mean, I believe it could happen. He had his, like, <laughs> flaws. <laughs> I say flaws. Uh, I mean, big ones. Um, yeah. apparently, yeah. but. It was great. It was a good section of the book. It was done quite well, and obviously he hadn't dealt with it, and that yeah. was still, like, recurring in his decision-making, and we see that also at the end of the book. Yeah. I think that when he's describing it, mm-hmm. the thing that's really missing, and maybe this is, like, emblematic of what we were talking about, the book in general, where it talks about the mechanisms of things and the plot and the science of things, but not the emotional content. The people, yeah. He doesn't really explain what he was thinking like he says we were trying to help but i'm like but you did you personally make this decision did someone else make this decision and you reluctantly decided to go along with it because that's what the military wanted to do that was my head yeah yeah that's my head that's what i wanted it to be but it didn't like that's not how he described it it. it's not in the text and so i was there going like who made this decision how did you make this decision why are you even meddling in these affairs like there was not enough scaffolding there for me to get from Mm. You are there to observe the Beagle people too. We are radically altering their fertility because we think that's going to solve their cultural problems. Like it was weird and gross and I kind of hated it. It's absolutely weird and gross, but I found it extremely believable that you'd get there like, well, we're just here to study this. But like, because Mm -hmm. there's like that paternalistic (laughs) attitude of like, oh, we can easily see what's wrong with these inferior people. We can say we have the ability to fix it. Like, we should just do it. Like, also, they won't understand if we try and explain it to them. So, like, obviously, mm. let's just do it. And whether he made the decision or not, I can absolutely see how he would just be part of that mm-hmm. attitude. And, again, there's no, like, saying that he's okay or whatever. It made him a more complex yep. character. But, yeah. yeah, I can just absolutely see how he'd be swept up in that attitude mm-hmm. of, yeah, we're helping, but it's actually a horrifying, truly awful mm. thing to do and maybe that's why he's more after doing it he realizes that you need to think through things some more but yeah it's hard to put into words but yeah, yeah look I get, I get where you're both coming from i think for me it's probably a hangover from one of the things that i struggle with when watching you know like star trek now and mm-hmm. not the new star trek but like older star trek i don't watch the original one but like next generation era kind sure. of star trek which I do enjoy, but the thing that always makes it feel dated is the social attitudes and yeah. the ethical stances and the understanding of, you know, people's different, all that kind of stuff that, you know, our understanding of it has changed so mm. much, even in just the last 30 years. And this is set in 2045. And I'm like, oh, it's so disappointing that people are still mm. thinking this way. So maybe it's just, I don't want to think that it would still be the case, but. But I mean, it's, yeah. it's a theme throughout the book. They've got like, racial supremacy issues and stuff like this but mm. a theme that i came to across the book a lot was like homo sapien supremacy was a thing so like for example the acid planet thing mm-hmm. cutler was like when he gets explained it in simple terms like what's happening there he's like oh so what went wrong with them like why are why are they as- mm. acid rather than normal like us and that's like the normal like us attitude yep. and so like these people who went across to the beagles even if they went in with the best intentions, air quotes, they're like, these are dogs. They're not people. They're dog people. They're lesser than us. We know better. So it's that same thing of like, they don't learn lessons from the past because yeah. there's always an us and them attitude. So in a science fiction novel, people might sort of improve on race, whereas they clearly don't because there's that whole thing about when they um make their mission and they plant their flag or whatnot, and then they see the China's mission thing, they decide to make their thing a little bit bigger to <laughs> to be better than 
another yeah. country. Like, even in this science fiction world where things have arguably improved between race, there's always some form of way of supremacy that comes through in the yep. next storyline, <laughs> the next, yeah. next storyline. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that sort of comes through in a lot of the different ways, and that's part of that whole we see ourselves as better than the Beagles, or they saw themselves better than the Beagles, and that's why none of the lessons are learned, because at the heart of it is this attitude of being better, more important, knowing more. Hmm. I did like how it painted Snowy, though, because his reason for coming, like, he sees that, he gets it, because they've seen dogs from Datum Earth, and they understand how humans treat them, and he's basically like, you wanted to control us, like, this was not about helping us. I'm here to observe humans so I understand you better and I make sure this never happens again. Because he can see that even he kind of grudgingly says, like, even I understand, you know, Mac is not necessarily a bad person, but what he did was fucked and I'm Mm. here to understand how it happened so I can try and stop it. And I liked that sort of slightly more sophisticated aspect Mm -hmm. of his character. There was this idea that in Beagle society, mostly it was all about trying to please the pack mother and fight against the other packs. But there was that one beagle whose job was to try and explore and think outside the box. And I don't think that was Snowy. I think that was maybe maybe it was. I can't remember now. But if it was, it would make sense like because mm. that's kind of what he's doing. And I, I, I liked that a lot. Mm. But look, all of that happens. They find some weird worlds. There's one where it's like there's two different kinds of life here. Yeah. It just looks like a vine going around a tree. And they're like, no, no, no. One of them has like sort of DNA and the other one has a totally different biological mm-hmm. chemistry. And they're working in symbiosis in a way that's really freaking us out. And foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Who knows? They finally find the wreck of the Neil Armstrong one. This is good. It's on the other side of this massive band of uninhabitable earths. There are survivors, but there's only five of them, and they're not members of the crew, it turns out. I was like, holy shit, plot is happening. Yeah. <laughs> <When we got laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, I was like, here it comes. Got our five, exciting 200 incident. pages yeah. in. <laughs> Look, I would have read a whole book about the crab civilization, but I'll <laughs> take too. this. This There's is like, okay. That's vignettes, and this is plot. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. That's fair. But look, the survivors are five youths who are named David and some other names the other people don't really ever get to say anything. But they all got the surname Spencer and they're all from Happy Landings, the weird place off in the high megas where people who accidentally step through soft places just end up. That's why it's called Happy Landings. They claim they're passengers, but it's pretty fishy and they have this weird sort of charismatic, not control, but influence over the crew that's not its not hypnotic or anything. It's not, it's not sort of said to be psychic, but they just sort of have a way of talking and speaking and being that really beguiles a lot of the Just have the a crew bunch members. of Dorian Grays. Yeah. Yeah. But with Snowy's help, they figure out that actually there is somebody else here, but he's been stuck in a cage in the woods nearby, and it's a character from the previous book. <laughs> Minor character who we don't talk about ever again after this, but it's Sam Allen- who was on the Benjamin Franklin but got kicked off the crew for starting some shit at one point, and now he's been on the Neil Armstrong, he reveals that what happened was the Neil Armstrong visited Happy Landings and there'd been an attempted coup by these young people who are weirdly smarter than everyone else. We'll come back to them. And they'd started basically like a civil war there, but then they'd almost succeeded, but they didn't. And they were like, what are we going to do with them? They're really, really smart. We can't imprison them. They'll just figure out a way to escape. They keep seducing everyone. Yeah, they keep seducing everybody. (laughs) So what we want is, can you take them on your big military ship where you're going off and can you just go past some uninhabitable worlds and find a place where they won't be able to walk back by themselves and just leave them there? And they can live there, but they won't bother us. But along the way, they beguiled the crew and busted out. (laughs) 
and staged a mutiny on the ship and took it over. Sam Allen hid aboard, and when everyone else got put off, he managed to hide away somewhere, and then he came out and scuttled the ship so that they wouldn't use it to go back and blow up Happy Landings, because, and I'd kind of forgotten about this, these ships are heavily armed. Yep. <laughs> like, they talk about them having lasers and all kinds of other weaponry, and we'll find out towards the end of the book they're even more heavily armed than we think. But, yeah, this was this was intense. Yeah, and I love, this was, I think, Mm-hmm. Another one of my favorite parts of the book because yep. it was well paced. It had like the mystery, the turnaround. Like it was just, it was done very well. But also as a side point, um, like one of the things that hinted to there being someone else there, he'd been writing his initials on things. And it was like, oh yeah, because they like, asked him to build stuff for them. Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, South Australia. And I'm like, no, that's not. <laughs> 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 but yeah. Yes. But-, but it was great. Mm-hmm. It was like just a little mystery. Like it was just done very yeah, well. Yeah. It was, it was self contained. It was good. It, it kept the pace up. It, and it really picked it up a bunch at that point in the story where it was getting a bit, you know, it was lagging. Uh, the kids are interesting. I don't know where I fall on their characters or their plot intention. Mm. There's a lot of other things that we could talk about there. I, mean, but- I think we're going to come back to that when <laughs> yeah. we get to this, because this is where it really intersects with yeah. the other storyline. But we'll, and we'll come back to that later. It's great. But yeah, this sort of happens and then the mission continues and then it sort of dovetails into one of the other big mm-hmm. threads. Then, then it's the over. There we go. That's and just then... that whole thing. Is- <laughs> yeah. But they do, I mean, they do keep going and along the way they pick up the crew of the Neil Armstrong one and she eventually keeps going to Earth West 250 million, which is a big milestone. And then she decides we're going to turn around and go home now because it's getting boring because <laughs> it's just all this purple pond scum on all these worlds. And then every now and then we find something really weird and interesting, but most of the time we don't find it. Oh, but then there's one more interesting thing there. That's right. There are a couple. Yeah. Well, one of the things that happens is they find a world and they mention this. This is on the way back. They clocked it on the way, but they didn't stop there for any time. But on the way back, they're like, oh, here's a world that's got a bit lower gravity, a bit more oxygen. Black requests going there. And they do stop there and everyone has some shore leave and it's fun because you can jump around and you feel all energized because there's more oxygen. And he's like, I'm staying here. And she's like, you're what? But he's brought a whole bunch of gear with him to establish a colony. And he says, my staff is going to stay with me. And I think a few of your crew want to stay with me as well. And it was when he said that. And Maggie's like, well, okay. No, she said that. Maggie Maggie said that. She she said that some of her crew were interested, actually. But was that her grudgingly acknowledging that she'd noticed? Because I don't think she was offering them up to him. I think she was kind of like, oh, some of them want to stay with you. Like, that was how I read it. I just read it as an observation. She's like, oh, they seem happy and they kind of, like, they've been mentioning it. Because, you know, they established earlier on that she's got eyes everywhere and people report back to her. So she'd heard that some wanted to stay. And that's when he got creepy about it. Now, I don't remember this creepy bit, so please remind me. What does he say? The Chinese crew member who's there, Maggie mentions that she wants to stay there. She's like, oh, yes, great. And her her offspring will be beautiful, long-legged. Like, like he describes them as, like, because oh. of uh, yeah, big like because chest of, because, yeah, of big the chest because of the oxygen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, wouldn't you like to stay and procreate the thing? And he's just real looking at all the women with his gross old man vibes being like, I'm going to be young soon and I'm going to repopulate this whole place with all, like, it's just. You know, I couldn't tell if that was just an old man who doesn't realize he's being creepy or whether he was actually being creepy or whether it was just written in a really odd way because it has happened before, even in the long earth. There was some interesting dialogue choices between oh i'm blanking on his name now between sally and joshua um, joshua mm. well, we haven't even mentioned him this episode yet much so <laughs> yeah. i don't well, blame the you the book doesn't either, the book so. doesn't either. yeah um <laughs> so i couldn't tell if that was intended to be he's just a creep 
Also, I'm just pointing out again, his name is Douglas Black, and he has done nothing villainous this entire book. I am disappointed. Well, apart from saying this, I've found the quote, and you're right. I think I read this and I was like, oh, he's just being weird. Yeah. Because he immediately says, you know, like the Martians of Ray Bradbury. But what he says is, ah, that delightful young officer, she would be very welcome. Her children will be tall and slender and have big chests for the thin air. Will be. And I thought, that's (laughs) weird. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't. Because now I look at it again, I'm like. It's, It's weirder when you hear someone say it to you, too. So hearing that in the audiobook was like, okay. And it was the, the, the fact that, like, she will be staying here and having children, not like she was going to stay here, do some science and go home. It was suddenly, like, women become uteruses and not people. In because this, he's big about yeah. the whole, like, we'll repopulate this world kind of a thing. Mm. Yeah. And you're right. She does sort of, she tells him, yeah, some of my crew want to stay yeah. here. So this is, yeah, there's so many things in this book. I can't believe that I forgot how that is. Maybe I was just like, why is Maggie doing this? This book is a million pages long and it is the third in a series of a million page long books. Misattributing who's saying which one? Very minor. I actually think this is the shortest one <laughs> of the, of the five. It felt like the longest. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's only, it's four, my edition's 438 pages long. So it's not short, but it's not a massive chonker of a book. I'm not saying it was bad. Like, as in, like, I hope it's not coming across that way. I'm just saying that the pacing made it harder to read than the others. There was a lot of great things. It's okay. If you did think it was bad, you can say that. It's I think fine. the structure was bad, but there's yes. so many, like, redeeming qualities in the world mm. building. And the images that I still liked it. I just wish that they were written in a more accessible way. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the structure is the thing that pulled me up the most. It's the thing I criticize the most in science fiction books because I feel like they get the mechanics of the world so well, especially if it's like, say, hard sci-fi or whatever. You know, a lot of the stuff that Baxter does is just incredibly well detailed. But sometimes the plots are thin, non-existent. And this is one of them where I was just thinking... What's the driver of this story? You know, where are we going? I don't quite know where this is heading. And, you know, we get some plot points, but they're so deep into the book that you're just carried along by excellent world building. And it is excellent. Mm. But mm. that's why, again, I can't say it's a bad book either. It's just, it's not a very, you know, competently structured one. Um, it's a spine, yeah. like just something yeah. to hang the rest of it off that you can constantly see. Oh, no, it's. We're going back to here. Which is kind of why I think Long Earth succeeded, because I think that it did feel like it had a journey and a spine, and you were promised a journey. And in one sense, I was expecting that to then pay off in the next book, but didn't happen. And then in this one, I thought, I don't know know what's happening in one sense. Like, I don't know where we're going. I don't know where any of these characters might land. Mm. Yeah, and in this storyline as well, it ended in a weird sort of place because I didn't quite know the intention of the mission for Maggie. Like I didn't. She had a fair bit of free reign. I mean, they they do talk about that in the book and that it's an unusual circumstance because in the, you know, data Earth and our real world in the modern day, military commanders are almost never out of almost immediate contact with their superiors. Yeah. That was cool. Whereas she's off on the long earth. She can't contact home, particularly not 250 million steps from earth. So she has autonomy about what they're going to do, but you're right. They don't necessarily, I mean, they talk, there's that, you know, Callie makes that speech at the start about how we're going to explore the long earth and it's Mm going to, and we're going to bring the Neil Armstrong crew home. But those are kind of fairly generic. I mean, Mm. the Neil Armstrong one's quite specific. We're going to find them and bring them back. Mm. 
I got the impression the idea was they would complete the intended mission of the Neil Armstrong while also saving the crew of the Neil Armstrong, mm. which was exploration. So I, it kind of made sense to me, but I get what you mean. Like, it wasn't definitive. It wasn't like, oh, we've done what we came to do. Let's go home. It was like, how far do we want to go? This is probably far enough. Let's yeah. go home. Yeah. Interesting if it was like, let's do a one-way mission as far as we can go and have like things sending back the other way with information. But yeah, mm. I don't know. The whole book felt like a lot of things happening that were interesting, but that were only loosely connected by theme, and that is hard to make you push through when it's such a long book. Yeah. Joel was saying that Black hasn't done anything villainous, even despite his like real piratey name. I reckon, and I'm hoping, this is actually going to be like a core thing of one of the future books, like his his society that he's created because like there's so much potential there. And if it is squandered, I will do the biggest scream in my heart because if they just leave it there, I'm like, <laughs> well, after him being such a like felt <laughs> presence in the background yeah. of the first two books, it would be weird if now that he's shown up and done something, it didn't go somewhere. My well, prediction just- <laughs> is yeah. we get a line. We'll get a line in a future book where someone's like, Oh yeah, that Douglas black guy. Uh, yeah, turns out it went fine. You know, like, I bet you it'll be some line which just ends that storyline forever. No. Turns out the oxygen didn't save his life. He died a year after we left. I did, just on that point, I did like the thing that Mac is very skeptical because he's doing this weird oxygen therapy. He's like got an oxygen tent on the thing. That's why they were arguing with him about hoarding oxygen. And so this is why he wants a high oxygen, low gravity world. And the idea is that he gives the coordinates of the place where they are to Maggie. I want you to tell people so they can come and join me. It's quite clear it's going to be rich people because who else can afford to go that far into the long earth? And Max really skeptical. He's like, I don't think the oxygens thing is going to work out. But you know what? If people come here, he's going to end up extending his life because the people who come who are experts are going to have nothing else to do but figure it out for him. <laughs> I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. I like that pragmatism and skepticism that Mac has. And how they'll turn to some of the most evil people ever, because, like, at least the most evil people of history died. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. But they'll just yeah. fester. So, I just think uh, that there's a lot of potential there. But, again, there's a lot of potential in lots of the book that just... But, again, you know, like, really old school references. Like, he names the colony Caracol, which is the mm-hmm. name of the mountain yep. where Shangri-La is in the original source, which I haven't read. I just sort of know about it secondhand. And uh, there's another bit where they, they use the name for Earth from C.S. Lewis's Quiet Earth books, which, are, again, books I haven't read, but I kind of mm-hmm. know about them from Reputation, which was his sort of more sci-fi series that yep. was still still a very heavy Christian allegory, but uh, yeah. but but about Earth and Venus and, and, and Mars. They were good. Yeah. The, the um, I should read it. It sounds that. cool. Yeah. It does sound like fun. There's really good stuff in there. Um, one point on Black, and I know that this character apparently is my favorite character in this book for some reason. Uh, but, but he did. The creepy old me, man is your the favorite. The creepy old man. <laughs> the creepy old white man. Um, I will say that he reminded me a lot of this the terrible movie that came out, I think last year. What was it? Don't Look Up with yes, Leonardo I'm DiCaprio. <laughs> all I could think of was Mark Rylance's character in that. Uh, movie because I thought yeah. he was the best part of that whole thing of mm. just being this evil, evil human being, which has a great comeuppance at the end of the story. Pretty much the only ending that movie had. But <laughs> all I could think of was like, oh, I can't wait. This Douglas Black character, we're going to get some real good. Nope. It did not. Not it this book. Not, not this book. Don't promise <laughs> me next. this, Ben. Don't. Maybe next book. I can't promise you anything. I don't know how these books go. 
I hope that we just get a whole book of them festering. Like a hundred years later, they've created this terrible society of like yeah. eternal billionaires who are just evil now. Let's get on to yes. the third and final storyline of this book. The next bit. The ne- the next bit exactly. This kicks off with. Lobsang, who's clearly worried about something, and he's hanging out with Sister Agnes, who's also been resurrected in android form in the previous book. And they have a great relationship. I wish we'd spend more time with them in this book, but the bits we do get with them are great. But he's clearly worried about something and a bit distracted, and so Agnes has been sort of organising things to keep him busy, (laughs) including a very Pink Panther-like situation where another android that's dressed as a monk just randomly turns up Mm -hmm. and attacks him. (laughs) That was great. That was very funny. That was Mm. great. I enjoyed that. But anyway, he's worried about something and he contacts Joshua and asks him to come meet him. And Joshua reluctantly does. What else is he doing? (laughs) What what else is he doing? Well, nothing. Exactly. exactly? He's hanging out going, why does my head hurt on New Year's Day? I didn't drink anything. My my child and my wife. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah, he's not worried about that. And anyway, he goes to meet with uh, Lobsang near the Yellowstone eruption site and they get into his twain and they're flying above the crater uh, and having a conversation. And this is like the one time that Joshua talks about his wife and child where Lobsang like sort of very tactfully, well, tactfully for Lobsang brings it up and Joshua doesn't really want to talk about it. And Lobsang explains his theory that he thinks a new version of humanity or advanced humans are coming into the world. Basically, he's like, look, I'm Professor X, and I think there's this some mutants out there. 100% um, the vibe I and, <laughs> and he's like, but I want to find out where they're coming from or what the deal is. Joshua, I want you to look into this. And he doesn't give him any more hints than that. He's just like, do it. And Joshua's like, maybe this is why I'm getting these headaches. Last time it was about an advanced life form. Maybe this time it's advanced humans. And so he starts his, but you know what he did? He's already started it. I wrote in my notes, Joshua starts his investigation and I put it in inverted commas because he doesn't. He just remembers, mm. wait, I know a guy like this. And nope. then the first three chapters of this storyline after this are just him remembering the times he met this guy, Paul. <laughs> and I'm like, this is terrible. <laughs> it's like, here's Welcome a flashback. Ben. Here's some Welcome stuff that to, happened. To complaining about the structure. <laughs> uh, I know. I, I, this is the storyline that I hated, so I didn't like mm. it in this one. Maybe I didn't notice so much in the other ones. But this is like planting stuff that has happened previously during and explicitly during the timeline of the mm. other books. Like his first time he meets this kid, Paul, is just before he married Helen. So that's even something that happened in between books, you know, that happened between The Long Earth and The Long War. And I'm like, why? And, like, I like the idea of I, I'm fully on board with flashbacks. Same. But this yeah. didn't feel like that. It was just Joshua going, oh, how am I going to solve this problem? Oh, there's that kid I met. Isn't it convenient mm. that I also, mm. yeah. Mm. And he it- remembers three times that he met him and then he goes to see him. That child I've spent more time with than my son. <laughs> yeah, in this book. But I also overall oh, all the books. Yeah, I, I felt it was it was quite awful as well because I really first of all I didn't like the way that they depicted Paul's relationship with his parents, particularly his dad, but also both of his parents because they don't even hint; they just basically flat out say the reason that Paul's parents split up is because he was too difficult to deal with. And that his parents split up and he lives with his dad and his sister lives with his mum. Like, he doesn't get along with his dad. His sister doesn't get along with his mum. Eventually, they go their own way and he's getting into trouble. And Joshua arranges for him to go to the home that he grew up in because he's like, the nuns will sort you out. They'll help you out. And it'll be better than any other thing that could happen to you. And I'm like, this is weird and gross. I don't like this. And then so he goes to visit him. He goes back to the home. And this is our first impression of Paul as he is now. He's made a woman cry. She's leaving the house. And he's basically like... 
what? We just had sex. It's fine. You just, you don't mean anything to me. Why are you so upset? And you're yeah. like, oh, for fuck's sake. I, yeah, and it was at that good. point I could see the writing on the wall, mm-hmm. you know, of how the next were going to yep. be depicted. Writing on the pole. And we're going to, I think we're going to have to get into this because I hated this. I hated it, you know? Like, it felt like a massive backward step from everything we've learned and thought about, you know, neurodiversity. It felt like someone read a textbook about what autism was that was written in the 1950s and went, what if that? But sci-fi. And you're like, no, <laughs> that's yeah. no, this is awful. Did you fe- did you get that feeling as well? 100%. I, ne- I never drew that connection, actually. I that's, that's This is the first time I'm thinking of that. Like, and if that is the case, like, and I'm going to take a moment to think about it. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. The way that I read it, basically, I was kind of like, oh, this character has changed completely from what they mm-hmm. were setting him up to be like. I didn't like where they were taking the next in general, yep. but it kind of felt, when I saw the sequence where they where they go and meet the other ones, it was kind of like the children in Brave New World to me was what I was reminded of, <laughs> yes. where they're like encouraging yeah. them to do like sexual play and that kind yeah. of thing. So yeah. that was where my brain went. I hadn't at all drawn that connection. Yeah. I, I think it was just like I drew the X Men connection first, and I was like, "Oh, cool, we're gonna get Cyclops, and we're gonna get Laser." Like, no, I didn't think that, but like, <laughs> I thought I knew where the story was sort of going with that, and I was like, I was really interested. I like that idea, and I even think that, like, I, in some of Bax's other works, like, I think he's done really advanced civilizations and species and stuff really well. So mm. I, I think that there is a precedent that it can be done really well within these two writers, but like, this one just felt so weird, and and. The thing that I felt, and specifically in that in that instance, Ben, I didn't pick that up, but the thing I felt was just it felt so crude to these characters, mm. uh, like you were reducing them to their basest elements, and you're like, that's all you are, <laughs> you know that you know, and and there was no idea that that was just the perception of Joshua, or any of the other characters, it it was almost taken as just authorial fact that this mm. is what they are like, and when you're doing that, it just seemed so strange and weird it, it we never see any of these characters acting with any sort of empathy or, or compassion towards even each other because if we are drawing like a species thing that that the book is doing they never interact with each other in any way that is interesting or compelling or if they look down on homo sapiens or humans and looking at that like sure but they don't interact with each other at all and so it doesn't give us as the reader any sort of sense that these are even real <laughs> They just Hmm. sort of don't fit. And I did not like pretty much any scene that they were in. And I mean, yeah, like the Napoleons, uh, them being in the book as well. Like none of them felt compelling as characters, but also didn't feel real. I just couldn't see them. And there wasn't even like an interesting nature or nurture argument because later when Roberta, who is pretty much we're told she is one of them, but a little yeah. bit oh, older, flat out she just goes, "Yeah, I'm one of them." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But slowly, like they hint that, and then she says it. But um, she's like, "Well, I sort of have been brought up around humans, and so I sort of have a different attitude." I'm like, "But so have all the ones. Yeah. Like, so has Paul. Mm. Like, he has spent the bulk of his life in the same place that Joshua did, yep. and so, and it's implied that maybe like he." meets the others and suddenly like as a group they decided they're superior and therefore they're all jerks and we're all lesser <laughs> than but it just doesn't quite make sense because yep. like yeah there's people like Roberta or the older ones and that hasn't quite happened so it, it wasn't mm. the consistency to why they're like that crude is the, a good way to put it I think Joel yeah and, and yeah 
not to harp on the X-Men thing a lot, but again, you know, this is the thing that I thought they were going to do where it felt like one was approaching that idea of, yes, we are different, but, you know, this is who we are and, you know, we're going to fight for our rights in the idea of, you know, Charles and then you have Magneto's idea of supremacy. And, you know, mm-hmm. I like that as a, as a concept in science fiction and fantasy, but they didn't do that here. Hmm. No, it's like there's two They're different all. brotherhoods of mutants. You know? yeah. <laughs> That's it. They're all yeah. the evil, the evil just ones. Terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason that I sort of pegged it with that sort of very old-fashioned sort of like Asperger era yeah. depiction of people with autism is there's this idea that they're all very, very smart, but they have zero empathy, mm-hmm. which is such a stereotype. I mean, first of all, it's not accurate. But also, why does being smart mean you no longer have empathy for other people? Like, even if you take the sort of real world allegory out of it, I hate it. And why are these people so evil because of it? And Willis Lindsay is like semi a hero of the book, but if a jerk. The thing that I thought of that I sort of brought in a little bit earlier was they are sort of a counterpoint to the way that our species have been acting to everyone else across the long earth and long Mars. Like the humans in those books are like, we are better. We are expanding. We should be here. We're, we're entitled to everything. We can make the beagles like, have, like we can fix them, all of that. And then suddenly we're met with someone who's like treating us like we treat other people. Mm. So I thought that maybe it was kind of, that was the attitude, like, because humans are used to being at the top. And now we've got something challenging us and making us lower. And that was trying to show how horrible it is to be put in that position. So that was how I kind of viewed. I also think that the transition was done crudely. Like I was like, why are they suddenly like the worst people in the world rather than curious little <laughs> yeah. children? But yeah. yeah, I think it was putting us in the position of the people that we oppress. Yeah, that look thematically, I think that absolutely comes through. Yeah, I mean, and probably is the narrative intent, right? But structurally, yeah. it they didn't it tell it. Doesn't, yeah, no, and also like just from a practical, like this is the bit of the science fiction that also doesn't make sense for me because they do go through and you kind of find out where the next come from, which is happy landings, and they keep talking about how there's probably other places like this, but we never find out about any of them or if they really exist. But they they keep saying this isn't the only place, surely. But the idea is that because it's a community where there are trolls and humans yeah. living together, people don't stay there unless they can live in harmony with trolls. And this means there's a selection pressure. They use that exact phrase for humans who can integrate with trolls, which means they have some sort of higher level of brain functioning or they're more intelligent or whatever, which has led to this emergence. They're kind of all loosely related, like not closely related, but they all kind of have the same roots, all the ones we meet. A lot of them have the same surname even. My Princess Diana. I, could, I wish it was a different name. I just wish. Yeah. <laughs> Why Spencer? <I> don't know. <laughs> um, but they, yeah, but they have, their brain structure is different. But they've just suddenly, like, Lobsang talks about how it's a thing mm. that's just happened. But Happy Landings has been around for centuries. Like, one of the things in the first book you find out is that there's been natural stepping humans for a long time throughout history. And a lot of them who, in a moment of fear or, or whatever, have accidentally mm. stepped and fallen into one of the soft places they end up in happy landings because it's kind of like at the bottom of the bucket, so to speak. Like, that's where everything drains out of those soft places. And that's been happening for a long time. But not long enough, like, even if it's hundreds of years, not long enough for evolution to change the structure of the human brain. Like, it just doesn't quite- Because they specifically say there's nothing psychic or weird happening here. It's just evolution. And you're like, no, this doesn't make- I just, yeah. I didn't buy it on a science level. I didn't like the way it intimated the relation between this sort of different brain functioning and being a jerk. Like, <laughs> I just was gross in 
every way. Because they all, this is the other thing, they all think the same. Paul and his friends, they don't do anything bad to other people in a big sense, but they treat individual other people like shit, like he treats that girl, which comes back on him because she goes to the police, um, but then they raid him. They raid everyone, though. It's a bit of a complicated situation because it's like yeah, she's it's gone to them with cool. something, but they're picking up all of these people for a different reason. So I was like, how does that raid quite work? And also it's very quick. The way I read it from what's said later in the book is that the government, at least the American government, it's not clear if it's an international thing, although maybe it is, but they've been sort of observing this as well, which I thought was kind of took the wind out of Lobsang sales a bit. Like he's yep. supposed to yep. be ahead of the curve, but he's not in this instance. And she's just like an informant and they've gone like, okay, this is a trigger for us to do the thing we've been waiting to do. That's how I kind of read that situation, which is also kind of gross. But yeah, they capture him. They also capture Joshua because he's visiting with them, but they let him go because he hasn't done anything. I mean, neither of the rest of them, maybe a little bit of- He's got the right DNA to be let go. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah. So gross, isn't it? Um, Which is the point. I mean, I want to say there is is an element of this that is the point that it's not okay to do this, but- the characters are all depicted as people who are treating humans like animals. Yeah. Um, and this is where Nelson comes into the story because Lobsang's also got him on this case. After Wistful remember having sex with some woman on that island. <laughs> oh, yeah. He remembers that thing that happened in the previous book. I was like, well, that child will come back. <laughs> no, not in nope. this book anyway. <laughs> um, no. Uh, but he goes to the, um, US Longcom, which is like mm-hmm. the US military thing in charge of their operations across the long earth. They've got a base in Hawaii, which is partly because if you step out of Hawaii, you still can't get anywhere because there's sea around you everywhere. So I thought that was quite smart. Yeah. But anyway, they've got a, a base there and they've brought all of the necks that they've apprehended. And that's their own name for themselves, or at least that's what Paul's group call themselves. Apparently that's what they all call themselves. Again, like they all think the same things and do the same things, even though some of them have never met. It's weird. But yeah, he goes there and gets a job as the chaplain to talk to them. And he talks to Paul. And that's when Paul's worst side comes out, where he talks about how if Nelson had a daughter- And this is the other kind of creepy man thing about talking about women, where he's like, yeah, if you had a daughter, she could be a vessel for my child. But my child would be one of me and not one of you. It's gross. Yeah. It does not- it was really hard to feel sympathetic for them. Like, on a macro level, you're like, yeah, absolutely, what's being done to them is wrong. Yeah. But every time we meet one of them, it kind of <laughs> makes me think maybe yeah, something does like, need to be done about them. That's, And I don't know if that was the point. In, in one sense, it's highlighting the philosophical discussion that we get at the end that isn't really philosophical, it's actionable one. Um, hmm. But it's trying to depict the idea that, well, maybe we are incompatible, right? Like, And that's fine to have as a discussion and a really interesting sci-fi point. Hmm. But again, we come back to this idea that if people are being assholes for the sake of being assholes in order to prompt the reader to feel, well, I have to hate these people in the same way that we felt the same way about Willis, I felt like the next were were having that done to them where they were like, they're just kind of bad, right? And in one sense, characters who say they need to be getting rid of, we shouldn't feel bad that they're saying that because of we've seen their actions. And and I couldn't tell, again, if this was an intention to make us hate these people, because none of them, outside of Roberta, and I just hate that idea of like, oh, yes, but there's the one good one, you know, like, and I mm, yeah. just, again, the next feel like this completely fictional uh, idea of what higher intelligence would look like. Mm. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. That that was that's yeah that's definitely was my feeling because like they're not given any motivation 
the reason they treat people like garbage is they're like, because we're so much better than you and we hate having to even speak to you. Like, we can't even speak to you properly because yeah. they have their own language, which is a cool concept. But the only thing they apparently use it for is to talk about how shit everyone else is <laughs> and how they can make, like, programs they can sell to make lots of money and or start a violent coup or mutiny. They don't use it for anything cool. You know, like it's like, mm. and there isn't the sense of dispassionate either, which I think if you wanted to show that in the idea that, well, if you're a species that's so much more advanced or possesses higher intelligence and the idea that we look at ants, we don't really notice if we're walking on them or not. It's not in a sort of dickish way. We don't go mm. out of our way to step on them. But these guys seem yeah. like they do. Yeah. They're not like data or, you know, yeah. a Vulcan in Star Trek exactly. who don't understand human emotions and so upset people by accident all the time. Like, they're deliberate. Like, they get what they're doing. They're like, yeah. no, I just think that you're way beneath me and I'm going to treat you like shit. It's not how I treat members of my own kind. And they even talk about it like that. Like, they talk about themselves being another species and us and them and you're the worst. And it's, yeah, it's really hard to get on board with any of them. Yep. And you can't even be like, oh, it's because they get beaten up for being too smart, because usually they're getting beaten up because they're being deliberately cruel. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, yeah, I get what you're talking about. How we, The point is to make them awful so that there is some sort of yeah. should we or shouldn't we do something about them. But I feel like it goes to such a crazy level immediately. Yeah. Like there's yeah. no nuance to it that it's really missing that, you know, and, and you, you could write a whole book about this. Mm-hmm. And it would have that nuance. But here it's like the slimmest of three major plot threads. Yep. And we learn very little. Even like a scene where we see Paul meeting another one of his people for the first time and what that sparks in him could have made a big difference, I think, in terms of how we understand them. Yep. Yeah. Because he was lonely was one of the things. He was separated from his sister and all of that stuff. So having that bridging scene, I think, could have been helpful. Yeah. Because we all understand, I think, or, or a lot of us and probably a lot of you listening, understand what it's like when you feel like you don't fit in and then you meet people, you know, you meet your people. Um, That's a huge thing for a lot of us. Like, I think a lot of people have experienced that for one reason or another, but we didn't see that here. Like, we just get told, yeah, it's so much, and it just feels like, oh, it's so much more convenient to talk to these people because I can use my high-speed, high-density-of-information language that we've all invented, apparently, and that we all speak, even though some of us, again, have never met each other. (laughs) It was really... Yeah. And then they talk about how the physiological difference is that they have the same amount of brain, but the surface of their brain is much more dense. I can't remember the exact specifics of it, but it was like, basically, they've got a lot more efficient brains. But even seeing like their hierarchy would have been helpful for like, example, the Napoleon seemed to be led by David. So is he like a more intelligent of the intelligent ones or like seeing like seeing Paul come into a group, for example, and seeing if he his personality is subjugated to the group or to a leader or to a personality, that would have also, I think, been mm-hmm. interesting to see how it works. So, mm. And explain a sudden change or why, like, maybe this group is horrible because their leader has certain attitudes and that sort of spreads throughout all of them, like a virus. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Because it felt like Paul and his group were kind of like peers, like there wasn't mm, a leader. Yeah. And again, you know, they hadn't done any, apart from treating other people like trash, which is not okay, but they hadn't done anything like otherwise egregious yeah they'd written some stock market prediction <laughs> software that they managed to flog Which for all the money that was good. Yeah, yeah um that was great you can but, do it do it yeah but it was good <laughs> um and then they just step off into the woods to you know fuck each Sorry. other like it might, okay great that sounds like you're not hurting anyone but then why do you also treat people like trash that scene would um 
Oh my goodness, he's just never in the book. I'm Joshua. just never gonna. I'm never gonna remember <laughs> his name. He shouldn't be kid. there. He yeah, he's not to there. Be. He's not. He doesn't do much. He doesn't he's do much. again. Character. He's a camera, right? But in that scene in the woods, again, even when they're explaining the situation to him, it it just didn't work for me. And the idea that it just felt mm. so strange, it, it felt like it was there to shock you more than it was to actually tell you anything about these people. Um, mm. It's more and like again, like oh, it's twenty forty five. Why are you so shocked by some of this stuff? <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Also, like, why is he like sleeping with that woman and treating her terribly when he has like this glade of like his peers? He says he doesn't <laughs> like to sleep with like yeah. dim bulbs or whatever. So why does he? When oh, that was the worst dim bulbs. Oh my god! Yeah. And it was gross that they'd all come up with a name for starters. And secondly, again, why is their name from mm. the Early 20th century when they've like, they're all under the age of 20 or something. And it's 2045. You wouldn't even know what a bulb is. Like all the lighting would be LEDs or something. Also, Roberta says that um, sort of dispassionately. She doesn't say it as an insult, but she sort of just says it. And I'm thinking, well, has she met somebody that has said that? Or Or do they have a hive mind? (laughs) Because like the crystallids where they can like communicate with each other. Like, yeah. It did feel very like, um, what's the cuckoo one? Oh, Sound of music. No, uh, you know, the, it's a, the Wyndham novel. Not, I can't, Christmas? for some reason, all I keep, my brain keeps thinking of the Stepford Wise. I'm like, no, not that one. Well, the one with the children. The, the Midwich Cuckoos is the one I'm thinking of. It oh, felt a bit like that, where, the, you know, there's these weird kids who grow up in a community and they're not like us, but that's not what's happened. It's supposed to be natural evolution, which means it must have been gradual, which means their parents must be reasonably like them. But instead, it's presented like they're this evolutionary leap, like a yeah. mutant in the X-Men, where they're radically different from their parents. Well, they mentioned in Happy Landings that the parents were smart, but they're not that smart. Mm. And I think that was their attempt at being like, well, the, the, but it, you're right. It did feel like there was a mutant gene that just sort of happened <laughs> at the same time everywhere. And that that also made no sense because, like you said initially, in the idea that if you're raised with other people, then maybe you you know that nature nurture can happen. But even in Happy Landings, they're with people and they're mm. still, and and if you're showing empathy to the trolls, that means that you you have a level of empathy. Yeah, it didn't make sense because the whole thing because we didn't really explain that plot too closely. But the Napoleons, as they come to be known, are David and the other four who are the leaders of this group of Next who decide that what the leaders of Happy Landings are doing about the fact that more and more people are coming there and it's ruining the makeup of the town. They don't like it. And they're like, they're not doing anything. We should just take over. We know what to do. And they get guns and attack them. And there's a bloody civil war and lots of people die. From memory, I think they're like the only five left. Like the other Next who staged this coup are all either, and the people that they convinced to join them are all either dead or escaped, I guess. Ben, did you say the word war? Was there a war? Oh my goodness. Yeah, oh my there was a war. In this book, there was, there was a war. war but not in well, the we didn't other. see it. It's oh, just mentioned to us. Although it could have happened during the, during the last During book. the long war. <laughs> okay, secret. Okay. I'm okay with it now. Uh, I'll have to check the timeline because I don't, uh, I'm not sure exactly when it happens. 
Probably not that long ago. But it's implied now that it is a leap forward and a dominant gene because when he's talking to the chaplain, he's like, if your daughter and, and I had a child, yeah. it will be one of us. That's not, not even how be. dominant genes work. I've literally <laughs> written an essay about this in regards to how magic works in Harry Potter. I'm sorry, but like my year nine science class would have made it very simple. Um, <laughs> no, no, it doesn't matter because you're not guaranteed to get the dominant gene, right? That means everyone's got to have two of them. It's got to be recessive. No, what if they're a parasite, like a yerk? Oh, no. Anyway, let's get to the end of this plotline so we can stop talking about this horrible (laughs) situation that I just hate so much. (laughs) No. (laughs) Anyway, whatever the deal in the next is, things get kicked up a notch when Maggie returns with the Napoleons and takes them to US Longcom. They get imprisoned with all the other next. And when they find out that not only are they being weird and doing weird things, which is why they've rounded up the others, But there's some of them who have not just staged a coup in Happy Landings, which the American government probably doesn't give two shits about, but staged a mutiny on board one of their military twains. They're like, no, fuck this. These guys are a big problem. A lot of people. Um, They killed a lot of people. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to do something about this. So they have this big meeting and it's like in the Avengers or something where they have all the shadowy holograms of the leaders of all the things. It's a Star Wars erasure, but okay. (laughs) Okay, they also do it in Star Wars. They have this meeting and they're deciding what to do. And Nelson is observing and the psychiatrist he's come to know there, who's a fairly minor character, but uh, she's all right. Everyone's a fairly minor character. (laughs) He's talking on their behalf and like sort of explaining, hey, these are they're not necessarily evil. And Roberta Golding has managed to get in there as an observer because she's close to the White House. And this is where she sort of sneakily and not at all subtly just reveals to Nelson that she's one of them and- and she's very dismissive. I like, I like a lot of the things she has to say about it because you get the impression she's a bit older than a lot of them because they're not all the same age. It's not like one of those novels where like everyone born at a certain point is the same and weird, like in the Midwich Cuckoos. But this is more a thing where, you know, she's like, yeah, these kids, like, I don't call myself like a stupid name, like the next, like, I think I'm a superhero or something. And you're like, oh, thank God someone's recognized that, but you're just lampshading it now. <laughs> but anyway, she's like, yeah. Listen, Nelson, clearly these people shouldn't be in prison. Like, they've done some bad things, but they just need to learn better. Will you help me? And he's like, of course I will. Like, this is wrong. And there's a bit where she talks to him about apartheid South Africa, which is where he's old enough to have memories of, even though this is 2045. So, he must be getting on, right? He's only in his, like, 40s or 50s. Must have happened to his parents then. Yeah. But he knows. He knows the history. And, of course, you know, post-apartheid South Africa is not exactly perfect either. But uh, but anyway, he's he's like, of course I will. This is- horrible and gross, like the way they're talking about them, this can't be allowed to happen. And so he calls in Joshua, who calls in Sally, and they get onto Hawaii and without any and this is like they skip the heist part entirely. <laughs> they oh, escape three hundred and fifty pages yeah. and you're just telling us that they just did this in this. There no was attention. a paragraph. Yeah. They get them all out. In one go. And we don't even know how many there are. I don't think they ever describe it. It sounds like it's not more than like 30 or 40. It's like a big classroom size. I know I keep coming back to this, but they made me read so many pages about slime and they couldn't (laughs) give us one page of the heist. (laughs) I would love to know. Well, yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. I would just love to know how many of them there are. Like Because with what happens next, I think it's quite an important bit of information to have. But anyway... They escape and they go back to Happy Landings because it's the easiest and furthest place to go to. It's not like it's TV or a movie where you have to do it off camera because there's no budget. It's a book. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. But they go to Happy Landings and the military decision is already, we're going to go to Happy Landings and sort this out because we know that's where they come from. And they send Maggie and not just Maggie, they send Maggie and both of her ships and her crews 
And when she gets there, this is where Ed Cutler, captain of the Cernan, is like, so I've got this nuclear bomb. And you're like, excuse me? <laughs> and there's this hint earlier on that he's clearly up to something, that he's got some secret mission that she doesn't know about. And we never find out what it is. And now it's not a mission. It's just having a bomb. Yeah, it's, it's just having a bomb. It's, it's not a mission. Yeah, he's got a nuclear warhead and uh, he's already hidden it in Happy Landings. He's like, they represent a you know clear and present danger to our security, but you are in charge. So I've set it up and you have to decide if you're going to blow it up or not. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, I was not ready for this. I loved that scene because he was, they described him as being incredibly smug that he had completed his mission. And I love that because- There was no completion. He didn't set the bomb (laughs) off. He just delivered it and then gave it to her and was like, I was, I did my thing. (laughs) I'm going to sit in my room now. (laughs) Yeah. This was my job. Now you're in charge. I'm going to have my celebration shandy. Like it's just, uh, I thought there's going to be a twist here too. I thought he was going to, cause he's like bloodthirsty kind of a little bit or like a bit. I thought that she's going to make her decision and do a thing and then the opposite would happen because he Oh, yeah, I totally stuff. thought that was going to happen yep. too. But of yeah. course that didn't happen because it was this book and it's like, oh, yeah, here we go. And now it's the end of the book. <laughs> Jolly good. When instead she guys. has, like, she has as you alluded debate. to earlier, she has the, like, high school debate yeah. Yeah. where she, oh. where Max says, why don't you hear? And Max suggests this, right? He's like, why don't you get two people looking at Because she's like, I've got to take this seriously. And as she's talking about this, I'm like, no, you don't. You're in charge. Just say, no, we're not using a nuclear bomb to kill a bunch of people. Just say no. That's all you've got to do, Maggie. Come on. And she's instead like, no, I have to take this seriously. No, I have to justify Joshua's um, being in this book. Yeah. So, so Max, like, well, all right, if you've got to take it seriously, why don't you get two people in here and get them to give you the pros and the cons? And she's like, great, I'm going to make you do one of them. Okay. And I'm going to make you tell me why I should do it. And he's like, fuck, what? You know, he's like, he's like every kid who gets the like negative side of a debate where that's clearly the wrong side. And <laughs> like, and it's not a very nuanced topic. It's such and a rough like, no. position for him to be in considering his history as mm-hmm. well. There's yeah. so much baggage there. And, and they show later that he feels quite terrible about having to be on that side of the debate and having what if i actually won right like yeah both before and afterwards he's like it's such an awful position to put somebody in or is it an amazing position to be in because you can be like great i will do a shit job of of, like arguing great job yeah because he took it seriously but i'd be like oh no like i'm arguing on the side like so someone who's actually like really wants it doesn't get it if i really don't want her to do it i'll just be like oh you know like terrible arguments oh no i lost (laughs) yeah because it's fun it's fun to set off (laughs) nuclear bombs yeah. yeah, I just don't uh, understand why that wasn't an option. Was he the one who said in the previous book, the secret about war is that it's fun. And that's why we keep doing it, which I thought was quite a, like, mm. a powerful thing mm. for a military person to have that insight. So in this book, I'm kind of like, yeah, but then I thought I was going to hate the actual debate chapter way more than I ended up hating it. Was it was fine if it had to happen. Mac's arguments are like, he tries just to be very practical about it. Mm. He's like, the reason we should do it is because if we don't do it now, you can't do it later. And mm. so if you think yeah. that they're a threat, you have to do it now because they, they're not going to be able to catch them or get them all in one place. But Joshua is right because like, you're not going to get them all and they'll remember that you tried. Yeah. That was the clincher. I really liked that in concert with Max points. I, I thought that ended quite well, right? Mm. Yeah. It was a good, it was a weird chapter to exist, but it was yes. done fine. I feel like they could have just had a chat. I don't really like my protagonists to have to get a debate yeah, to, in order to decide not to blow people up, you know? 
Couldn't they just have had like a conversation? Like it didn't have to be like a debate. They could be like, okay, yeah. let's, let's just like nut this out. Like the three of us, <laughs> let's just have a, a rational discussion about this. Like we're obviously leaning towards no because we're not the worst people in the world. But like, And Maggie just have- doesn't seem to be the kind of person who would have ever no. said yes. So no. I didn't understand why she even considered it. I feel like it could have been justified more. Her, her position. It's easy to forget while reading the book that she is not in Starfleet. She's not like from the 25th century where she's <laughs> commanding a starship and everyone on board is like a massive nerd. Yeah. Um, which is what Star Trek is like. It's not like that. She's an actual officer in the yeah. United States military and her job is on occasion yeah. to kill people and you can't become a high ranking officer without having or been through some shit and yeah. done some things, you know, like I'm sure. But they never talk about her previous history. We never know what shit she's been through. And I feel like that would have been a perfect way to set this up maybe a bit more for her yeah. to reflect on, like, this is like but when then, I had to go into that mission, then. blah, 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 yeah. but even worse. Like, there wasn't any of that. I don't so, need more characterization in this book. What are you doing? <laughs> don't, don't, don't break that here. Another page Jeez. of pond scum instead. Like, oh, yeah. how did it? Oh. Anyway. Yeah. Thankfully, she decides not to do it because I really, the other thing was I got to the end of that chapter and I was really not sure which way she was going to go. It is clever. I don't like this. I want to feel like I know she's going to say no. Thankfully, she did. And she disables it and they leave. And I was like, oh, well, they've disabled it and it was going to blow up anyway. And there was like a thing that made yeah. it seem like it was going to go like that. But then, nope. But we already had a nuclear explosion at the end yeah. of the book. <laughs> like, we didn't need another we one. We need two nukes. Yeah. I couldn't um, tell if Cutler was a play on Custer, and that was what I was thinking the entire time, like uh, Custer's last stand. I feel like Cutler is also a reference to something else, though. Maybe. I genuinely felt that he would do something. Mm. Yeah, but he didn't. He just obeyed orders. No, he's just sitting and smiling in his room. I did really enjoy the fact that he didn't as well. Um, Mm. Like, he was just happy the fact that he carried this nuke there and back again. Like, it was great. Just like Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) No, sorry, The Hobbit. The Hobbit, yeah. No. He's just going to put that nuke in a a chest and his his nephew's going to find it and have to throw it into a volcano. (laughs) The very Americanized Hobbit, you're right. (laughs) Anyway, that's sort of the end of the three main threads, except Lobsang and Agnes show up to visit Happy Landings and see what's going on. And he kind of, there's this whole thing with Lobsang at the end of the book where he clearly is hoping to meet the next because he's very lonely because he's this sort of vastly genius artificial intelligence and no one's really on his level. He's like, maybe these people are on my level. We could be friends. And he turns up and they're gone. They've left because during their journey to happy landings, Sally takes them through the soft places, which they have no previous experience of. And they're like, oh, hey, we're trying to figure out how the long earth works. And this is not explicitly stated, but I kind of read between the lines Mm. that Clearly, that's how they're able to leave because mm-hmm. they're not even all natural steppers. Like, Paul has to use a stepper box from memory. And they leave a message for Lobsang, which is, we've decided this bit of the long earth, this range of earths is just for us now. It's called the Grange. You're not allowed there. Leave us alone and we'll call it an end to everything. And Lobsang's like, oh, okay. And he has a quite a nice, like, sort of interaction with Agnes, who starts to see that he's clearly upset because he's asked her to tone down all of his training programs. And Sally has brought him, like, a bonsai tree that was grown in space. It's kind of weird and cool in this little glass globe, and he's trimming it, and he's really concentrating on it. And she's like, oh, that's weird. Like, normally you'd be doing, like, 600 things, but you seem to actually just be present doing this. And she has, like, a nice moment where she watches the moon with him. 
And he's sort of talking about how maybe he should destroy Happy Landings. And oh, if I was going to do it, I guess I'd do it with an asteroid strike because I've got all this stuff in space. I could easily organize that. And she's like, that's a bit extreme. And he's like, those two people we found who were here because people still fall through the soft places to Happy Landings. Are they on board? She's like, yeah. He's like, oh, good, because I've actually already arranged this and an, an asteroid destroys the whole place. <laughs> and that's kind of the end of the book. Which, there's a big problem with this. If that's still where people fall through the soft places, are they now going to just fall into a massive hole in the ground? He said <laughs> like- in his his spiel that he would have to figure out, like, a way to deal with the people hanging, like, who came through, I thought. Like, he, mm. like when he was, like, pretending he hadn't done it yet. So, maybe he had worked out a way. Like. Yeah. But, yeah. Because it is going to be a bit crap to go there. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that's the end of the book. What a weird way to end the book. It's just like, oh, we've, there we go. Particularly considering the first book ended with a nuclear explosion and the second book ended with a massive world-altering volcanic explosion. And then the third one is, oh, an asteroid, but it just destroys this one place on this far-off Earth. End of the bang. So it's not as big a sort of weird explosive ending as the first and two And I guess books. Lob's saying as well, like, he just doesn't feature in the book outside of, mm. you know, it does feel like he has a bit of an arc in this one, despite the fact that he has few chapters he was great i loved him in the long he's having some real like sort of soul searching in this book too like he's he's really worried about does he have one or he doesn't well he's not questioning that but he's like but is my nature now because he still believes firmly that he is the soul of a yeah uh, a tibetan (laughs) motorcycle repairman who's reborn into an artificial intelligence but he's now like i've been reading all about buddhism and you know my place and how it all works and the bardo and now I'm not sure that actually I can even properly die. Does that mean I can never move on in the cycle mm-hmm. of reincarnation? Like, what does this mean for me? And he seems to be really serious, like genuinely. Yeah, struggling. Yeah. Struggling with that, which I thought was a really lovely place to take his character. And the bits we got of it were good. I don't know that we needed heaps of it in mm. this book, but I, I did like that as well. Yeah. But that is the end of the main plot. There are a few other things. There's one in particular that I want to mention, but there are any other bits of plot before we get onto favorite extracts or lines? I just love the crab society where, like, they just had their little sand castles and the big statue of a crab that turned out to be just a shedded thing and the real creepy detail of, like, the harem without mm-hmm. shells. So, yeah, crab society, very good, um, but also horrifying. Do you think they'll come back, Liz? Do you think we'll see the crabs again? Honestly, point to any part of this book and ask me if it's going to come back and I could not tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Joshua. They're going to keep shoehorning him in whether he's relevant or not. Does he get his marriage back on track? I hope not, for Helen's sake. <laughs> I have a real bad feeling that we're never going to hear of Helen or Daniel again. Maybe Daniel, because mm. if the books keep moving into the future, you know, Joshua's going to get a bit old to be the kind of protagonist that they seem to need for some of these crazy adventures. And Daniel can't be next, because there was no sign of that when we like spent the little bit of time with him in the previous book. So, yeah. But that would have been interesting, potentially. Because, like... Arguably, because it's like the Happy Landings people have Spencer blood and it's like the two families, Spencer and Montague. And like, what blood does Joshua have? Because he's a natural stepper because it's all like sort of tied together. So I thought there was going to be something with the families Mm. all sort of linking it all up because Mm. it's the next and the natural stepping is somehow connected, I think, but not, not like all and all have one or like, you know, it's not like, yeah, like it helps. It's a Venn diagram, but not as well. I don't know that it helps, but like the people who ended up in happy landings were natural steppers. Like otherwise they wouldn't have ended up there because they ended up there long before step day. Mm. So yeah, I don't know. Because he's got like the family connections. I thought there's going to be some sort of, he has some sort of connection, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. 
What about you, Joel? Are there any bits that you thought were great that we didn't I loved, talk about? I love the Russian anthem. Uh, just the him start singing when just that whole scene was, was really well done. I remember replaying that on the audiobook. It, it was, it was funny. <laughs> just this idea that Frank was just claiming it. And he was doing his whole spiel and he was really excited. You know, mm. he was, he, you know, he wanted his Neil Armstrong moment mm. and just undercut severely. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was a great scene. Again, I think the thing that I would have liked to see more and I thought they started with was the religion conversation. I really thought it was going to go somewhere, but what we got was still really good. I think in general, the bus storyline was still the, the strongest one for me. I love space. I love anything. You go out there, you got me in and sure, there wasn't a lot of plot, but what we got was, was pretty good. Hmm. Yeah. How about you, Ben? I think the big one for me is actually one that has this sort of weird little payoff that's on one page which is when they're on their way on Maggie's mission, they leave some people behind in a couple of places Mm. to observe things. So they leave some people behind with the crab civilization. And then there's another Earth they find that's really weird, like a moon. It's orbiting an even bigger planet. And when they stop there, they look at the planet. And when it's nighttime, they're like, can we see lights on that planet? Is there life there? So they leave a team to observe it. And then you don't hear any more about it until one page, my edition, it's 407 in chapter 43, There's like one or two paragraphs about the fact that when they're on their way back, they pick up the crab civilization team. But when they go through the earth with the bigger planet, the team's gone. They can't find them. They can't wait around because they've got to take everybody home. So they just leave supplies and a beacon and say, please let us know what happened to you. We'll try and send someone back for you in the future. And that's it. If that doesn't pay off in a future book, that's the thing where I'm going to throw the book across the room. It's like if we mm-hmm. never hear about that clearly that alien civilization on the other planet that have abducted that team, I will be so cross because it's such a cool idea, you know? Yeah. But yeah, that was that was the one that stood out for me. Are there any favorite lines or anything that people want to read out or, or that really stood out? <laughs> I mean, I've got one. It, it, again, it was in that Nelson bit when he says uh, theology. The Church of England. We don't have theology. Yeah. Oh man. Mm. There was one line there are a few lines actually in this where I was like, Oh, that's just a really nice little bit of prose. And there there weren't heaps that stood out like that, but there were some that I was like, Oh, I like that. And there was one. Uh so this is when they're sort of flying towards the space elevator's thread that they see in the distance. That night, Sally slept no better and no worse than she had during the whole trip. Another legacy of her solitary nomadic life. She had adapted to getting by on whatever sleep she could snatch, as and when she got the chance. She was always aware, though, oddly, of the thread to the sky just a couple of miles away. Silent, ancient, with space at its tip and some kind of fallen culture at its feet. Her life had always been odd, even before step day just when she thought it couldn't get any odder. And I just thought it was really a lovely moment of acknowledging mm-hmm. that, look, we've thrown a lot of weird shit at you in these books, but this is like something else. This is an alien intelligent civilization that's built a space elevator and the remnants of that civilization. And I just, I really enjoyed that moment. Mm. How about you, Liz? Were there any bits that stood out? I didn't have any standout lines, but I, and it's strange that it's so close to the one that you just said that, the bit where her and her father are down at the bottom of the hole, they've just found the alien, and I thought that all of the, the tension was going to come from either the creatures bursting out or, like, something to mm. do with the spaceship, and then suddenly it was bits of the Woden floating down from the oh. hole. The image of that was just 
because I didn't expect it. Like, because they'd set up that something stressful was going to happen, but I thought it was going to come from below, not above. So that was beautifully done. That was really nice. I like that too. And the fact that it's because of the lower gravity, it's happening so slowly. Because mm. you can really see it. It's cinematic. Like that whole sequence was, as we were talking about earlier, very cinematic. Yeah. I will say that line of the sleeping with the fishes, but sleeping with the stars, that got me. That was good. That made me laugh. It was a very cheesy line. I, I thought I misheard <laughs> and I went back and I re-listened. And I was like, nope, that's terrible. <laughs> All right, we should get into some questions because we did get some great questions from you, listener. So mm-hmm. if not you, then another listener. Sorry, I don't mean to pigeonhole you all into the same group. We've just argued that that's not okay for the next. <laughs> I shouldn't uh, do the same for you. But uh, yes, we did get some great questions. So Liz, what, what's our first question? So the first one comes from Sven via Discord. So is this really just a fill the series up book or is it just me that most series have this one book with a lot of words but not a lot of stuff happening? I feel like maybe the vibe of my responses to this book has already answered this question. <laughs> yeah. Um, in short, I think it kind of is like it's a lot. It felt like 80% exposition and 20% mm-hmm. everything else. Lots of beautiful images, but I feel like it could have been a lot shorter or like just more put in to make it more of a book. I, I'm run out of words. I'm sorry. Like it, <laughs> it, it, it book, not the grace. But liked some of the thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's mm-hmm. about the length of the plot um, in the book, so it works. Yeah. Oh, uh, what it's, plot? Uh, <laughs> it's harsh, but I think like maybe 15% of the book was about plot, right? Like maybe. Uh, yeah, and, maybe. And, and those are probably the necessities of, you know, the series. Like you need that to, to keep going. But do you? I'm not sure. I, I guess by the time I get to the next book, I'll find out whether that is actually important. I feel like the next mm. will play the it next. better. <laughs> if not, if so not, much screaming. What? Um, they're just, they're mean, just off in the Grange now. And then if the never space elevator doesn't pay off into a, a plot point and not just a world-building point. I mean, look, I would... the next book is called The Long Utopia, so I feel like it's got to have something to do with the it. The title right? is and always you irrelevant. Promising, <laughs> you keep promising things that you can't deliver. I'm just, okay, that's I'm fair. Just I, holding can't, I have but no control. the question from my end, I'll, I'll say maybe. I, I don't right. know. Mm. I guess we'll find out in future books. I mean, I feel like a lot of things happen, but the reason that it doesn't feel like plot is a lot of them are not in the way of the character's goals. Yeah. Like, you know, Maggie finds a lot of cool stuff, but there's never, like, a threat to her mission not being mm-hmm. successful. Like, she just sort of gets there and then comes back. And then that's why it doesn't feel like plot. It feels like some interesting stuff along the way. And I don't know. I I kind of really dug it, at least in the, the Mars and the 200 million mission sort of threads. I was fine with it because I was yeah. interested. I wanted to see what cool shit they would find next. Uh, and then, you know, you get to the end of the Mars thing and there is like plot. It's like, whoa, okay. And they'd earned it. And then, you know, they find the wreck of the Neil Armstrong one. And it's like, yeah, there's some stuff going down here. It's built up to that, even though, you know, it hasn't built up to it in a direct kind of plot heavy way. There's need to be some stakes. Yeah, I, that's true. Yeah, the stakes yeah. felt not existent. huge. Like no one ever felt like they were in danger until suddenly they were. And really that was just the Mars thing. I think if they'd got, like, there's ways, and again, it's not really fair to review a book based on what it could have been or another version of the book that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine that, you know, if you wanted to tell this in a more action-packed kind of way, well, maybe they might have brought David and the Napoleons aboard one of the ships. 
Because I actually thought the way it was going to go, because they really win Ed Cutler over, I thought they were going to get on his ship or Maggie was going to order them to be left behind. But then Ed brings them onto his ship and they take it over and they have to have a fight or something. Like, I really thought that might be where it went. They get the nuke. Yeah, and then they've got a new calling. Oh, that's great. It's a really good mm. story. Yeah. So that could have happened, but then it would be a very different. It's not what they were trying mm. to do. They're trying to tell this very big story. Yeah. And to get there, they have to sort of do this big scaffolding, and it's not about the individual people's stories as much. So, yeah, I, I get where Sven is coming from and, and where you're coming from. I didn't feel that as much. I think definitely it's there's not as much going on in this book as you know the first two. Then again, having said that, I don't know. I felt like maybe a similar amount of stuff happens in the Long War. I didn't find it that different to to this. Structure makes a difference, I think. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I, I was thinking it when I was reading it, and I was wondering if and I've only ever surface read the Foundation series. I felt like that series was telling a big story, but it always felt like within those self-contained books, there was still enough stakes to sort of drive the story onward. And to me, it felt like in this book as well, felt like they were trying to tell this big, huge world-building story. But it maybe lacks some of those, those like, you know, A to B plot points. Did you get that sense at all? Yeah, I guess I, I need to see how it all plays out yeah. in the end because it, I hold on to the hope that this is all laying the groundwork for something very cohesive and big, like that yeah. all together the books will make sense and that looking at them individually in the end, they're just components, but it's yeah. not supposed to be seen as individual works. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't feel like I can answer it until I've finished it, but I'm sure. still very optimistic that the world building is all going to pay off. I'm not sure yeah. if that's quite what you were saying, but I think no, if not, no, then, yeah. then I think it'll be a bit disappointing. But mm-hmm. So um, we got a few questions from Bell via Discord, so we're going to have to choose one of them. So we're going to go with, is there anything plausible about Sally's trip to Mars? So Bell has included some detail, but Ben, do you want to talk us through? Because you did some research on this, didn't you? Yeah, so... Sally's trip does not take very long. So in the book, it's described as taking nine to 10 weeks, which is a very short time to go from Earth, or in this case, from the brick moon at Earth's position in the solar system to Mars. But it is plausible. Belle was talking about the fact in her question that, you know, you need to build up some speed. If you're going from one planet to another, if you're launching one of the missions that we've sent to Mars, you don't really build up speed by going in orbit around the Earth. But what you do is you use the Earth's orbital momentum around the sun You sort of nudge yourself once you get off the planet into an elliptical orbit that goes around the sun as the main sort of body in the solar system, but it intersects with the orbit of Mars and Earth. And if you just want to do a flyby, you can actually just come home for free because the orbital path will take you back again, right? So that is a thing. And there's a thing called the Hohmann transfer orbit, which uses the least energy to get from Earth to Mars. And that's really important because at the moment, our technology is such that, you know, we can only send so much weight into space. It's very expensive. You need a lot of thrust. And every, you know, kilogram that you put on a spaceship is very expensive to send up there. So you want the most efficient way to get there, which is not the fastest. But if you can take whatever mass you want into space, essentially for free by stepping into the gap, And if you've got 2045 advanced fusion technology, which they do, they talk about this in the many pages they devote to how the technology works, Liz, um, then you can go way, way faster. You don't have to do a transfer orbit. You don't have to go an elliptical path. You can just accelerate at a huge rate on the way there. And without going too much into detail, the technology that they sort of vaguely mention is based on real ideas about technology, which potentially is 
way more efficient and can go much, much faster than anything we've currently got. I couldn't find a definitive answer about this, but it certainly fits into estimates of how fast you could get to Mars if you had the ability to use as much fuel as you want, which effectively they they do. So, yeah, I think it is plausible. They don't probably sell it enough for someone who's only familiar, like I was when I started reading this book, with conventional ways to get to Mars in the real universe. But, um, yeah. First of all, wow, very good research. <laughs> now going to the next question, which is from Lachlan via Discord. So, I don't know whether it's more or less than the preceding books in the series, but does it feel not very pratchety to anyone else? Um, so Lachlan feels like it's a little bit like a Pratchett story with another author. And whilst I enjoyed it, it makes me a wee bit nervous about whether the final two books are going to feel like Pratchett books to me, which I think is a really interesting question. And I agree, basically. I think it feels like a Pratchett story written by someone else because, as I think Ben said earlier, there's not that very many jokes in it. Mm. And then Pratchett isn't defined by jokes, but the vibe is different. It was interesting. We read the High Megas, Joel, uh, the original short story version of this idea that Pratchett wrote like, way back in like 1986, I think mm-hmm. it was. Uh, we talked about it on the previous episode. And I think it was interesting to go back to that because it's important to remember that while Pratchett evolved a style that we really know from the Discworld and from mm. the other books that he wrote during the time he was writing Discworld, he started off writing much more varied stuff. Like the stuff that's been published and reprinted kind of aligns much more with what he later wrote. But also we recently got the chance to read the original version of The Carpet People, his very first novel. And while, you know, that's still much less developed, you know, mm. he was he was 17 to, you know, early 20s when he wrote it, it's much more serious, like it's not as many jokes. And I think this is like a side of Pratchett where he's always been a nerd for sci-fi mm. and fantasy. And this is his chance, you know, to, to revisit that and do something muscle, different. Yeah. And I get the feeling like, you know, as much as he did the work on this with Baxter and then went on to other things, because he knew, you know, his time was running out, essentially, this is still something that was really important to him. Like, he didn't have to resurrect this old idea and Mm. do it. Like, he was making plenty of money writing Discworld books and funny other books. And he had ideas for other stuff he wanted to write that he didn't get to write. But he prioritized this. And I think that is indicative that he wanted a chance to do something very different. And coupled with that information I got out of Mark Burroughs' book, The Magic of Terry Pratchett, about how this worked, I feel like, yeah, the story is very definitely there. The prose style is less Pratchetty in this one, definitely. But I think that the ideas are still his and getting to see what maybe he would have written about if the Discworld had not been the thing that made him famous... I think that's that's kind of cool. So for me, that's enough, and I and I do enjoy the ideas enough that even though and like the prose is not bad, it just mm. doesn't feel like Pratchett's other work. So this one comes from Stephen via Twitter. Um, Stephen's book club were discussing the Long Earth, and so they sort of tie in with that. Do trolls slash elves slash humans share an ancestor? I look from reading the Long Earth and from things that sort of happen in the Long War and discussions. I think the answer is no. I feel like they didn't evolve on Earth. Uh, they evolved somewhere else. But then again, that doesn't preclude it because, like, there's nothing mm, to say, like, yeah. an ancestor of humans couldn't step also mm. once they became intelligent enough. So, that's it. Actually, that's I thought that was kind of clear cut, but now I'm not so yeah. sure. Are we not all descendants <laughs> of the Big Bang? Um, no, I'm, I'm going to terrorize. We're all made of stars. Is that what you're saying? This? <laughs> I feel like that's one that I think we should revisit each book to see if there's, like, more clues given to mm-hmm. us, perhaps. Mm. And this one doesn't really say much about it, but one of the things that maybe says that no, not directly, is that on Mars, whenever they come across an Earth with a Mars with a life, Mm -hmm. the body plan of the animals is very similar, even though it takes different forms. And so they're like, okay, well, they've clearly like there's one kind of life that 
manages to get a leg up on all these different Marses. Mm. And then it takes some different forms, but it's basically the same. And you see that on the Long Earth, too, with some of the weird animals that they not very often but occasionally describe that are clearly like Datum Earth animals, but not. So maybe that's the answer, is that not directly, but the path of evolution on that other planet took quite a similar turn, but then went into elves or went into trolls instead of humans. Which is why I think we don't see any weird Baxter aliens, right? Like, mm. I remember mentioning that on the long yeah. earth and being like, I wanted to see some Baxter aliens, but it makes complete sense if that's the case that we would just see more human-like. That did ring a bell, like you saying about the weird Baxter aliens, so. <laughs> Maybe that's who parted that spaceship. A weird Baxter alien. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was an acid ribbon snake. Come You're on. right. Yeah, I love the was, acid ribbon snake. Yeah, that was so it was good. my favorite more. creature of both. I wanted to see them doing surgery on the acid ribbon snake. But look, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Joel, thank you so much for joining us again and coming on this very long journey with us. <laughs> we appreciate you. No, it's yes. fantastic. It's been great. There's two books left. We'll give you a break, I think, for the next one. But <laughs> would you want to come back and talk about the last Look, one maybe with I, us? When I want to know how these promises pan out, man. You know, like <laughs> it's going to be some broken hearts and it'll be all mine. So okay. looking forward well, to it. We'll all have a drink when it happens. Um, if people want to know more about you and about your new podcast venture, where should they go to find out more? Right. So the Dementia Center produces the Dementia Podcast. We're on hiatus at the moment. The host for that is Colm Cunningham. Uh, he's a great host, very easy to listen to. We've got a bunch of episodes in our backlog. It's worth checking out. That'll be my venture for the next little while. That's really about it. I'm laying low. I'm just working on that and working on my own writing. But thanks, Liz. Thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure to be on. It's wonderful to have you. I'm sorry about all the broken promises this book gave to all of us. Uh, yes, uh, but we promise if you come back, we will have fun again. I had fun. And we'll keep that promise. <laughs> Listener, finally, we'd just like to thank you. You've been very patient as this episode has come out out of order and later than we'd hoped. But we hope it was worth the wait. There were several questions we had to cut for time. They were all from our subscribers, and we'll be releasing those as extra bonus bits of content via our subscription service. Um, if you'd like to check those out, you can become a subscriber too. All you've got to do is go to our website, pratchatpodcast.com, click on the Support Us page to find out how that works. Uh, whether you subscribe or not, we really appreciate you listening. You can support the podcast in other ways by letting other people know about us if you think they'd enjoy the show giving us a review or a rating or just sending us an email letting us know that you're there and we'd actually really like you to do that it's too late for you to give us any questions for the next couple of episodes they've already been released or recorded but the next one that will be coming out after this that you can still send in questions for is Pratchat 60 this is our big reflective episode where we're doing nothing except answering your questions so this is your chance if you wanted to ask us about a book that you missed the first time around, or if you want to ask us a general Pratchett question, a question about making the show, about what it's like rereading Pratchett, basically anything that's vaguely on topic, we'll have a go at answering. So please do send those in. We want as many as we can get. The hashtag for that is Pratchett60. You can send those questions in via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or you can email them to us. That's chat at pratchettpodcast.com. Dot com. And we, of course, welcome your emails about other things as well. Well, that's it for us this episode. And until next time, if someone asks you if you want to set off a nuclear bomb, just say no. 
You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Joel Martin. Pratchett is produced and edited by me, with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast, and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchettPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat57. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.